0: There's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girls' night, we have to get our fix. And that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or a dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's Kelly'sKillerPopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoke Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium, handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Psst, guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mmm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out SmokedBros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, they called it an accident, he called it a murder, it was their conspiracy, it was his son. Join Roger and Quentin as they're filled with rage after watching the injustice that one father faces in rage by George C. Scott. The duo talks about what happens when the class system fails, George C. Scott's connection to Kubrick, and what a man will do when he has nothing left to lose. Next, the motion picture with something to offend everyone, At least in 1965, Tony Richardson's The Loved One. A blistering black comedy in its day, The Loved One pulls no punches when it comes to paralleling the mortuary business with Hollywood. Roger and Quentin discuss a star studded supporting cast, the magic of a real change, and the everlasting influence that Tony Richardson had on Roger. And remember, kids, it's not a rocket. Finally, a movie that you haven't seen but you'll want to find. Roger and Quentin sing a song for A Little Sparrow in William A. Graham's 1972 Cry For Me Billy. We'll learn what makes a 1970s Western unique and talk about the bravery of an actress who bears it all. Trust me, guys, this widely unknown film is the perfect watch for any true cineast. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery.
1: And thank you, Gala. Welcome to the Video Archives Podcast. I am Roger Avery. I'm Quentin Tarantino. And this week, we have three films. Well, let's let's begin with the first film that we saw, the film that uh, I had never seen before that you, uh, you pulled and showed me, mm-hmm. which is Rage, from 1972 with George C. Scott and directed by George C. Scott.
2: Yeah. And by the way, I, I think I deserve a little bit of credit because I put together the The movies to watch. I have a good idea of what I'm going to show, but I always leave it open for chance or for serendipity or impulse, whatever. However, two of the prerequisites that I have is that I at least show at least one movie that I haven't seen. Yeah. But then also I try to pick something that I think is a Roger movie. Uh, either something you've said you wanted to see or something I know you like or something is is in your wheelhouse. Or
1: something that you know will trigger me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the loved one coming up is definitely the Roger movie. That's that's for sure. You've been waiting to do this for like a long, long time. You know how much I love that movie. However, I want some credit for choosing Roger movies that Roger doesn't even know about. Roger doesn't even know they're Roger movies until he watches the unknown movie and goes, oh my God, this is a total fucking Roger movie. And I think even more than The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, Rage is a total Roger
1: movie. Rage is a complete Roger movie. You know, I, um, in the early days of OpenAI... I, um, as you know, I uh, I was an early uh, tester of it, mm-hmm. and so I created an AI version of Roger Avery. Mm-hmm. And what OpenAI does is it basically uses the availability of Roger Avery on the internet, mm-hmm. and you know the sum total of that, and it culls together all of that knowledge, and then it creates sort of a using language processors a sort of version of me. And of what it presumes. Well, it turns out there's another Roger Avery, a professor of uh, sociology at Brown Mm -hmm. University. And so it kind of conflated the two of us together. (laughs) And the AI Roger Avery has seen a number of movies that I haven't seen, (laughs) that I should have seen. (laughs) And I'm fairly certain the AI Roger Avery has seen Rage. (laughs) So I'm going to read the box. First of all, I just have to say this Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Home Video box with George C. Scott – by the way, it was truly, truly raging on the cover. It looks like his head is disconnected from his body. He's raging so intensely. Yeah, absolutely. And
2: by the way, okay, uh, rage would be taken from the uh, uh, drama
1: section under the R's. Yeah. And they actually call it the adult section on the on the side of the box. Uh-huh. Here. They mean drama. Mm-hmm. They mean this is for adults. But actually, this is
2: not a video archives, uh, video cassette. Uh, I was visiting a friend making a movie in Detroit, and they took me to the biggest video store in Detroit, Michigan. Again, and it was closing, but they were having a, a closing out sale and they weren't selling their shit cheap either, by the way, comparing to how some of this stuff is uh, they're like 54 bucks, 60 bucks or whatever. It's not a print, you know, well, like <laughs> anybody cares. <laughs> but I was like, I had the money, so I, I, I bought a lot of shit. And one of the ones I bought was a Rage. So that actually comes from this
1: huge video store in Detroit. So, uh, this is uh, George C. Scott's first film as a director. Mm -hmm. The tagline on the box is An embittered father blows the lid off a government cover up. His son is dead. He's dying. Overnight. Dan Logan's peaceful world has been shattered. And the only thing Dan has left is rage. A military installation has accidentally dumped a fatal dose of experimental nerve gas over Logan's Wyoming ranch and purposefully dropped a veil of secrecy over the incident. That's in quotes. With no one to turn to for help, Logan becomes both judge and executioner. Jersey Scott, an Academy Award winner for Patton, stars both before and behind the camera in this blistering thriller. As Logan, the embittered father who sets out on a hell-bent rampage of revenge, Scott adds another brilliant bone-deep performance to his impressive list of screen successes. And as a debuting director, Scott draws equally riveting portrayals from his skilled supporting cast, including Richard Basehart, Bernard Hughes, and a young Martin Sheen in one of his first major film roles as the cool, manipulative medical specialist whose specialty is deception. Like the China Syndrome and warning sign, Rage is an uncompromising story that's as terrifyingly vivid as today's headlines. Rage said Los Angeles Times, quote, "...really is enraged." A powerhouse polemic against the kind of military industrial shenanigans which makes the fiction so appealing, which makes the fiction so appallingly close to the truth. Where did you get the word appealing in there? <laughs> well, they broke up appalling oh, okay. and they cut it, and it hit like, it, and so it's sort of a appa- pop, and then it like dash ling. <laughs> and, and- <laughs> and I am aging. But, it actually- <laughs> <laughs>
2: but actually, the tomfoolery involved does make the drama appealing. <laughs>
1: yeah, actually, it, it's, that is essentially what the movie is. is tomf- running no, no, am- what is running amok other than uh, chaotic tomfoolery?
2: But actually, the running amok actually is secondary to the frustration of the cover-up. That Oh yeah, that is the length of the movie. I mean, one of the things that you said that I thought was so funny that prompted half of my setup. We're watching the movie, we're like a, an hour into it or something, and you go, this movie is either the best movie for paranoid people or the worst <laughs> movie, this is the, the best movie ever made for a paranoid audience or the worst movie ever made for a paranoid that may
1: audience. That might be a good place to get into my uh, capsule review. Okay, yeah, Which I, technically is written in the voice of Franklin Brown or in the voice of- uh, Bill um, Margold. Bill Margold. Bill Margold, but uh, but this one's clearly from me. Mm-hmm. Showing me this film in the year 2022 is akin to throwing gasoline on fire. <laughs> And you knew that. (laughs) You know damn well that I'm a conspiracy theorist (laughs) whose most paranoid conceptions and conceits have been recently realized as true. (laughs) Noah Webster had no definition for paranoia in 1828. It was a later invention made by others with a different agenda. The Merriam brothers define paranoia as the unwanted or delusional belief that one is being persecuted, harassed, or betrayed by others, occurring as part of a mental condition. Well, sir, in the absence of a mental condition in this film, paranoia is better defined as ultimate awareness. (laughs) (laughs) One doesn't need a star chamber, a bohemian grove, a skull and bones, nor Davos and the lizards who attend the World Economic Forum. One doesn't need a cabal, even, for a conspiracy of the dutiful to occur. This is how systems fail humanity, in their effort to serve. Jersey Scott worked with Stanley Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove, and from all accounts, the two became very close. One can feel Kubrick's strong thematic influence as Scott's sheep rancher character is stripped of his stock, his livelihood, his family, his pets, and ultimately his life, with no one directly nor singularly culpable for the crime. Should it come as any shock to any of us when a man stripped of everything he loves that he does anything other than run amok? (laughs) (laughs) Is that insanity or something more predictable? It was Shakespeare and Othello who wrote, Men in rage strike those that wish them the best. 1972 that's my
2: favorite Frank browner review that was really good
1: because <laughs> hey, it was
2: just roger sounding more pompous than normal yeah, but yeah, I,
3: well i figured franklin browner is a little
1: bit of a pompous ass yeah, yeah exactly. he's also he's also got a lot of my qualities he's, so. yeah. he's also damn correct <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing about this movie is that I'm watching it and I'm thinking, OK, so this has been going on forever. And all the characters are there, right? mm-hmm. like, you know, all the kind of familiar characters we've seen um, mm-hmm. wandering across our television screens for the last couple of years. They're there. George C. Scott, you know, saw them back then. And, you know, they've been around mm-hmm. forever. Look, look uh, The idea of the story
2: is uh, George C. Scott is a, a sheep farmer living out in Wyoming with his son. You know, real man of the earth. And uh, him and his son uh, uh, spend a night out camping during the course of the night. There's a local military base in town. And the government is uh, testing a nerve gas that they have. Now, there is a big conspiracy and a cover-up that happens. But it's the cover-up that's the crime. The actual crime that actually ends up killing people is is a legitimate mistake that happens. And they do a really good job of explaining that. They were testing the nerve gas in an area that was completely unpopulated. However, there was 10 minutes uh, where the valve was, was on Open open
1: when it should have been closed. When it should have been closed, they didn't know about it, and so there's a a, genuine mistake. Actually, they make a point of that in the film that like the it's happened, and they they the government is even saying, shouldn't we have like you know safeties on this? Yeah, shouldn't we have uh, things that have a safeguard against this? Well, yes, we do have airplanes. We started implementing that, but it
2: wasn't on this. But you still have us using a few planes that are not equipped with that function, and that is. This case right yeah, now. That's just the
1: reality of things.
2: And the gas is maybe only going for maybe four minutes or so. All right, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day. It doesn't they, even reach the town, but it gets close enough. Yeah, maybe that runs about like, you know, forty-five miles or something like that. All right, in the course of time. But Jorcey Scott and his son are are smack dab in that area. Now Jorcey Scott slept in the tent. The son slept outside. So he wakes up the next morning and all his sheep are passed out. He comes out of his tent. His yeah. son, who's been sleeping outside, yeah, it's it comes out of his tent. All his sheep are like are knocked out, all with blood coming out of their nose, and there is a son knocked out, all with blood coming out of his nose. Oh my God, what the hell is going on? So he scoops him up in a really riveting
1: moment where, he, like, yeah. it's so realistic. And I was just thinking about the desperation that a father has in a moment like that, where he picks up his son, and he then has to run from their campsite. To the road, which I'm guessing. I mean, they're sheep yeah, Which is so a long ways away because they, they went he camping. Has to they run, he has to run through a levee. He's got to run up a hill. He's, yeah, they're like, camping. They're not like camping by the car, all right? Carrying this kid. And you feel Agony. This, in agony. In desperation. In a long, you. long, wide shot. And George, George C. Scott is the
2: kind of guy that, you know, I mean, his, his whole thing is volcanic eruption you yeah. know coming from underneath and so like it's, a, it's like a, a death mass face ah, you know as he's like carrying his son and is heavy well
1: a man who's carrying like a lot of weight in his soul yeah which i think he really was from yeah. know, being in uh in war
2: yeah mm-hmm. the way he establishes the connection that he has with his son, but not in corny ways, not in any like scenes that are written to show uh, them finishing each other's sentences or them enjoying each other's quirky humor. They're not those kind of people. He's a he. He's a sheep rancher. He's not, you know, he's not a poet laureate. He, they're, he, they're he's not nat- going to wear yeah. his. He's not going to wear his emotions on his sleeve. Well, the most they do is they appreciate
1: nature together. Yes, the kid finds a centipede or a millipede or something. Yeah, he's and, a
2: very masculine man who has mm-hmm. taught his son masculine traits, and his son actually appreciates them. His he's son, learning from him. Yeah, his son actually yeah he he admires he, him and he looks up to him. It's admi- a perfect father son relationship. Is it, it, is, it is, but it is one that is not verbal. Yeah. I really liked his son. As little dialogue as he had, it didn't matter. Yeah, it it felt real. It felt real. And then like, but again, there's a class issue that really, I think, gets to the viewer in a big, big, big way. Uh, George Scott doesn't know what to do. He's not a doctor. And so he goes immediately to the doctors that he knows. You yeah, know, to the hospital. In the, the, the hospital, the, the doctor. family doctor. The family doctor. They're played. in a small town. So. Yeah, pl- uh, played by Richard Basard, who I think is fantastic in the movie. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he's wonderful in the film. His character is revealed more and yeah. more as the movie goes on. The more on. under
1: conflict he becomes, yeah. and the, the, more, the greater the turbulence within him.
2: Yeah, and the more that's revealed, the more your heart goes out to him. Mm. He is cut from a sandcloth of George C. Scott. He's a simple doctor dealing with simple problems in this Wyoming community. And so when he's faced with what's going on, he naturally goes to the higher medical authorities involved in this hospital and in this military situation. And they talk over his head. The way they talk over George C. Scott's head. But everyone just kind of figures, well, of course we don't understand this. This is all over our heads, but but they know what's going on and, and they'll tell us what is best to do. Because we, as Americans, are trusting of authority. Yeah, uh, you know, especially medical authority. Especially mm-hmm. medical, especially medical and legal authority. Yeah, all just, right, you know, and you can, you can even disagree with legal authority to some degree, but normally you feel like a crackpot if you're disagreeing
1: with a doctor. I was getting weird shades of coma as I was watching this. I was, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, but frankly, like the after image of coma. Yes, was... okay, but but this, act, okay, but I can poke a zillion holes in the
2: conspiracy theory that is supposedly coma. I can't poke any holes in no, this. This is well, tight the, as a fucking drum. There is in a n- disturbing way. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing they tell George C. Scott would ring even the slightest bell in a drama if we weren't watching a paranoid thriller called Rage, where yeah. we know they're taking advantage of him and we know they're culpable and we know that it's all about
1: the cover up so they don't get blamed for this murder. You know, that first the first moment that we know, I mean, other than than the fact that there's you know been helicopters flying around and suddenly you know the mm-hmm. sheep are all dead and mm-hmm. his son is bleeding from the nose. Is um, when his doctor is talking to Martin Sheen, who plays kind of the young, smarmy Mm -hmm. former military. Literally, I mean, I in some little ways,
2: it's one of my favorite Martin Sheen performances of all time. He is the face of banal evil. I mean, far more so than evil. Dutiful evil. Nobody in coma. Comes across in the evil, bland way that Martin Sheen
1: does in this film. And the most insidious moment with him for me, uh, perhaps other than the autopsy, is the moment where he shakes the hand of the good doctor, Mm -hmm. of George C. Scott's doctor. And he does kind of this weird handshake. I don't know if it's a military handshake.
2: Okay, look, uh, look, uh, that's a weird part of the film because that makes you suspect Richard Bassart far longer than I think than the movie bears out.
1: Well, that, well, that's okay to do though. That's, that's not so well, weird. But that, sounds like, a movie, them but that to- sounds
2: like a movie thing for us to be suspicious about shit.
1: Well, I read it as like a kind of, um, you and I are part of a club, a higher authority and you and I need to speak separately. And so I'm giving you a secret sign which mm-hmm. is basically what that is. It's a secret handshake. It's a secret sign, whether it's a, a real secret handshake oh, look, or, I or just a way for him no, to I say, agree. hey, I need to talk to you in secret.
2: Look, I agree with everything you just said, but they muddied the water as far as Richard Basehart's uh, intentionality. For,
1: for sure. For, well, for, for the first half of the fucking It's movie. a MacGuffin or whatever. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's because I actually thought he was part of it to begin with. And then I thought, oh no, he's really close to him. And then there was that moment between doctors. But then what he does, I think as an actor is so Just beautiful to watch. This inner turmoil that he's under, this conflict that he's under, that he's not okay with. And you can tell he's not okay with it if you know to look, if you watch it again, I'm sure, Yeah, everybody's amazing in this film. And, and you can see why I Martin, agree. Martin Sheen would show up in this movie and everybody would be like, Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he's fantastic. Yeah. And he's always been really sweet about George C. Scott. He's actually, back when he would do talk shows and stuff in the 70s about how George C. Scott really, you know, gave him one of his bigger roles early coming up. And it was like a big deal when they actually did Firestarter together, yeah, yeah. that they got a chance to oh, act that's together right. Again. That's
1: yeah. right. Yeah. They worked together in Firestarter. <laughs> I mean, this. I think I mentioned to you DOA mm-hmm. as a kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this is part of that subgenre of man is already dead on a revenge matter. Which, by the <laughs> way, I would not mind watching the Dennis Quaid DOA. Oh, yeah, right? the one by... Yeah, um, yeah the one by, by Den- the... Um, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel.
2: Yeah, I've always had an appreciation for that movie.
1: Yeah. The thing is... Um, the one guy, the doctor,
3: mm-hmm.
1: who has clearly been lying to him. Bernard Hughes. Who has been overseeing, his, Hughes. Who's been overseeing his son's vivisection, mm-hmm. who has just been lying to him and has been punting, knowing that he's going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, Jersey Scott seems like such a solid um, man mm-hmm. that it was like he didn't want to show. The killing of the doctor, mm-hmm. or maybe he doesn't kill the doctor. Whichever, I like to think whichever, he does. whichever it was, I think he leaves it up to us to decide. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to us to yeah. to choose what what happened. In my mind, he could only have killed that doctor. I think. I, I think he. I, I he's think running amok. He kills a lot of lesser people in this, I, and when and when he's killing people, it seems like my only problem is that. You know, some poor cop shows up on the scene is mm-hmm. like, you know, may I help you, sir? And he gets shot in the head yeah. by Jersey Scott. Yeah, but he never quite gets to Martin Sheen. Well, I don't have a problem or- with that because, like, he gets to the guy he can get to, which is Bernard Hughes. Yeah, and he all right. and he fucks up uh, their entire operation.
2: Yeah, but that would be too revenge-o-matic movie convenient for him to like literally get to Martin Sheen and all the other people on the chain. He doesn't show the hypotheses of the movie. The futility that, against, a f- yeah, that he can only vent his spleen against proffunctionaries.
1: Yeah, and that does seem what it's like. It's like he rages against the building. Mm-hmm. He rages against the cops. And he ravages the building, no doubt about that. Oh no, he <laughs> he does a number on that
2: building. He rains hell on the institution, which is the real culprit in this because every member of this institution thinks that
1: that they're doing the institution's bidding and thinks that they're doing the public good. Yeah, everyone is uh, has good intentions. Everyone is trying to do their job. Nobody is uh, necessarily fronted as evil so much, except for the doctor, who I just feel like is mm-hmm. in the greater yeah, good but, doing but, a okay. disservice but to humanity. But to tell
2: you the truth, one of the interesting things is when he finally has Bernard Hughes under um, um, at the end of his rifle. And I love when he kills a cat. Oh yeah,
1: I have to say because you know how much I love cats yeah, yeah. and uh, like that. I Fuck I'm, that cat! But but I have to say. <laughs> If anything was going to get me to talk, it would have been that, and that cat just like oh, well, and it does that cat. No, yeah, no. it's why it's why that, I, I was like, you know, uh, uh, there's very few things that would have probably made me talk in that moment. Yeah, uh-huh. blowing away that cat and having it vaporized oh, in front of in front of our eyes. Uh, no it's actually really I was interesting. Ready to it's actually <laughs> really interesting that
2: that's the big violence that actually George C. Scott presents in the movie and it's actually funny that like obviously that cat had nothing to do with this conspiracy but it <laughs> is that, was- <laughs> But nevertheless it's cathartic nevertheless you actually feel it in a big way and as opposed to just like killing the doctor and enjoying that because of the doctor's place in it, it always becomes as much deliciously fun as the doctor's entire line of bullshit completely crumbling in front of George C. Scott. Now, all of a sudden, he's admitting to everything. Yeah, yeah. And then and he's such a sniveling worm when he does it that that actually becomes more so than the murder. That is almost the justification for the revenge-matic uh, onslaught. Now, this movie is... Edited, am I right, by Michael Kahn? Who, who, if you don't know, is one of the great editors in cinema history and has been Spielberg's, uh, after an early part (laughs) of the the 70s, where he's editing, uh, uh, for Warner Brothers especially, is editing Rage, he had his Black Bell Jones. Uh, Michael Kahn, uh, sometime after Werner Fields, teams up with Spielberg and then they edit everything together up to this day.
1: I'm wondering if George C. Scott... Let the doctor, the good doctor, or the or the bad doctor, rather, uh, live, and that that's and that he just left after that scene, and mm-hmm. that Michael Kahn cut that out, and oh, without to having suggest, him killing him to suggest that there's a dot dot dot. Killing. Wow, that would be clever. Because I'm thinking that that's probably like just in my CSI No, I think you're right. No, I think you're, no, I think you I think that's probably more more correct than not. That's probably exactly
2: what happened, and Michael. Khan created a situation that leaves it a dot, dot, dot
1: with a question mark. And let's talk for a moment about these kind of brilliant, but also slightly wonky transitions. They're not brilliant. They're, they're wonky. Well, th- there is something to be said about in a shot of the present, seeing the shot of the future in the same shot. Look, there's a lot of things you can describe. And that's, and that's like a cubist shot. And Look. for me, as like somebody who appreciates cubism, I was like, oh, okay. and listen, I'm not saying he overuses it. But there was two moments in there where where there the, was one of them that worked. I can't remember which was, one that worked. I, there was the one where the the truck is driving toward us, and we see, and then the camera pans to the distance, and we see the tent, and they're actually at the tent already, and they zoom in on it. There, there was that, that doesn't one. ring a bell. But one of them, after none of them working, one worked. I don't. <laughs> that one doesn't ring
2: a bell. All right, of me going eureka. Right. <laughs> it pretty much plays like. George C. Scott is trying to direct a movie and it's a little bit like, hey, look, Ma, watch me direct (laughs) with these weird slow motion shots out of nowhere that tie into a, a time cut.
1: (laughs) I'm going to make sure everything links together. (laughs) Just like, (laughs)
2: and you know, it it takes him 45 minutes to 50 minutes before he drops it. But finally he does drop it.
1: Thank God. (laughs) Well, there are some ridiculous moments like when he drives by, like where just suddenly they'll do like a kind of everything when you know that when suddenly it goes into slow motion. No, no, no. And someone is doing doing something goofy, like throwing a rock at a post office box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, And that that becomes like kind of some weird transition or the sheep to dog transition that was terrible <laughs> there were some okay, hurry, well, they, but he's trying he's okay, they, doing little forces and I'm sure Michael well, Hahn was other, no th- small part of that Look, the other bad thing he
2: does as a director because I'm able to notice it because he does it so often yet there's one time he does it and it actually works it's like he doesn't really know what to do with the camera so he starts like a, a, a three shot of character two shots or three shots of characters and it's going on and then he just picks one thing to slow, slow, slow zoom into during the course yeah. of the scene. Um, Whether it's a dog's face or somebody's face or a fucking TV screen or some shit going on out a window. And he just does it again and again and again. Nevertheless, he does it with Richard Basehart, and it's the time when Richard so Basehart is realizing that these people have been giving him double talk and he actually has not been serving his patients in the in the correct manner. And it ends on Richard Besart's face, but it doesn't even end on Richard Besart's face. It continues on Richard Besart's face for like another two minutes and Besart holds it together because we're completely with him. As much as those other shots don't work, This works completely effectively. This is exactly what he meant to do the entire time. And it works really great. But then after that, he drops all that stuff. And now he just actually starts making the movie. Now he's dealing, he's not dealing with perceptions of how cinematically it should play. And he's just actually down to the drama at hand, which is why you want George C. Scott making the movie. Are you on uh, George C. Scott's side from the beginning to the end?
1: Oh, you know I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a question I'm asking you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I absolutely am. I mean, I um, you know that I'm a family man. Mm-hmm. You know that I am suspicious of systems. Mm-hmm. I'm suspicious of groups of people. Like, I believe that individuals, in general, mm-hmm. generally speaking, are inherently good in nature. I believe people are born mm-hmm. innocent and good. But groups of people, mobs, corporations... Uh, collections of people tend to do things that the individual would never do. Mm-hmm. They start working in systems together and they start working in inhumane systems together. Not to be inhumane, it just happens that way. Mm-hmm. You know, just mob mentality is, mm-hmm. is one way of putting it. And so any movie that's about the individual, mm-hmm. and especially when it's George C. Scott, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, any any movie that's about the individual who is just at every juncture... No, no, no! Look,
2: hello. Watching the movie now, I feel differently than I did before. I mean, having a son now, you know, to understand his confusion and terror when the son's in the in the in the truck, and Him he's driving running, and, yeah, and he, and he I mean, in the truck and he's just driving to the hospital. What's going on? I mean, that's just well, shitty
1: and terrifying. There were two things in that moment that just were so real to me that were like really, really affecting me. One of them was mm. I, I spoke of already, where he's carrying yeah. his son and running and just how he's doing it like he's really doing it like that's Dorsey yeah, yeah. Scott like carrying that young actor and he's in it in mm-hmm. that moment and then when they're in the car and he's driving toward I, I i think it's the hospital Yeah. and he's going through the parking lot and he's just leaning on his horn like beep 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 mm-hmm. beep 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 as he's like mm-hmm. roaring through the yeah, yeah. the parking lot which is like on one it's hand shit shit eating panic yeah you're in panic and you're just like you don't give a fuck about any of the the mores of society mm-hmm. you know yeah you, You know, it's like I'm going to lean on my horn and honk on it and I'm going to like clip other cars and I'm going to like drive over. I'm like my son is dying. Yeah. yeah. It's primal. And then to have the people you trust slowly erode away like, you know, just like sand washing away and at the ocean. If you take away everything from a man, Mm -hmm. if you take away all the things he's loved, he's left with nothing then all you have left is rage.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things, I'm <laughs> very well said. Uh, you know, we watched that movie the other day, uh, last week, uh, uh, the Western that Kurt Douglas r- uh, wrote and directed "A uh, Posse with Bruce Stern, oh, And we described awesome. it as, uh, um, as a Watergate Western. Now, this is, movie is made before Watergate, but if it was made in 75 or 76, it would be considered a complete allegory for Watergate because it, it covers the Watergate aspect where it's not about the break-in at the hotel, it's about the cover-up.
1: And the and, and the evil aspects about everything are all about the cover-up. Well, it could just as easily have been about Operation Sea Spray in 1950, where the uh, government sprayed bacteria during a uh, warfare test on San Francisco mm-hmm. and affected the entire population of San Francisco with all sorts of bacteria. I made a list, mm-hmm. you know, from the Tuskegee syphilis study mm-hmm. to the Navy-sponsored beef blood transfusions in 1940s to Willowbrook to Operation Big Buzz to uh, the measles vaccine experiments where they were giving drugs. I mean, there is no end to the, um, the well-meaning groups of people, well-meaning groups of people mm-hmm. attempting to do good um, and bringing about suffering mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on, on to many And rage captures that because, again, there's not really anybody who's evil. Nobody's really evil. Just everybody thinks they're doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Like we're supposed to stop a public panic, right?
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: We're supposed to, uh, you know, do this,
2: right? It's it's. it's their constant lying to George C. Scott is what comes across.
1: Right. As but for the evil. betterment of the greater good, supposedly. Well, for the and, better- and that's what groups of people do that an individual wouldn't do, like yeah. uh, like uh, Richard Basehart. Mm-hmm. You know, is is the good man in this, and even yeah. he gets pulled along into the lie mm-hmm. to the point where he can't swallow it anymore. He can't live mm-hmm. as, a, as uh, someone who lies like that to another Even though baby. he
2: calls himself, oh, I'm just a little family doctor or whatever. I'm just a general practitioner. You know, he's the one who knows enough to be able to put two and two together. He's the one that has enough learning when it comes to the medical profession to put two and two together and realize I've been gullible. Yeah. I've been gullible and I have not been taking care of my patient in the right way.
1: Well, and it's, there's no mistake that Martin Sheen at a certain juncture suddenly is wearing a military uniform yeah, yeah. that suddenly we realize, wait a minute, he's a military doctor. Yeah, yeah. He's not just the young new doctor. He's literally a military doctor. No, if doctor. it was the
2: Andromeda strain, he'd be one of the main people. I yeah, don't know, you know in completely. the cast. completely. Yeah.
1: And they've got sort of a, a, an Anthony Fauci type guy there yeah. who's uh, sort of their civilian person uh, pragmatic uh, mm-hmm. person of, you know, well, you know, th- I'm just saying people are going to die. <laughs> you know, just be- I'm just telling you the facts. Oh, the, the Robert thing. Walden character. Yeah, the Robert Walden. He's wonderful. Uh, Janeway. Yeah, I know he's terrific. And the, the, is that his character's name? Janeway? Janeway.
2: Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's the Anthony Fauci. Oh, make no mistake. They're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> just like- oh, And look, and I would just wrap this up to just say that uh, um, George C. Scott's performance is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, uh, uh, and one of the things that George C. Scott has always been very good at, and I can even point out a couple of other examples Is playing grief. Like, for instance, one of the best capturing of of grief that I've ever seen in a movie is a scene in The Changeling. Because in that movie, he loses his wife and kid at the very beginning in an auto accident. And then there's just this moment you see him, you know, 45 minutes later into the movie, he's in the haunted house and he's crying. It's just in the morning. He's crying. He's just like he misses his wife and son, and he's having a crying jack in the morning. And then all of a sudden, he starts hearing this boom, boom, boom in the house, and it interrupts his crying jack. You actually see him stop his his emotional crying, just like what the hell is that? And it, but 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 just him crying alone, apropos of nothing. But we know what he's crying about. He's lost his family. Has uh, always been one of the most powerful demonstrations of of mourning and of pain that I've ever seen in a movie. And the same man who did that scene directed this movie and starred in this movie to, I think, a really wonderful degree.
0: Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And now in a rebuttal to Quentin Tarantino's editorializing in his new book, Cinema Speculation. Video Archives Podcast is proud to present a rebuttal by noted Canadian film critic, Franklin Browner.
4: Hello, friends and fellow cineists. This is Franklin Browner, formerly the head critic of the Winnipeg shitty press, excuse me, city press. And I will be again once the infernal Freemason Moloch-worshipping cabal that controls Manitoba releases their hermetic stranglehold on my fair city. Until then, I am a critic in exile, but I will always be there for you, the people, and will continue to bring you, the moviegoer, an honest perspective of unshelected opinion. No corporation owns or controls the opinions of Franklin Browner. I say what I want, and that holds true for today with my review of Quentin Tarantino's new book... Cinema Speculation, a collection of recollections blended with opinions which must be addressed since he is wantonly spreading misinformation about and slander of the great John Borman's greatest masterwork, Deliverance. He has gone as far as to call this brilliant cornerstone of 70s cinema, mm-hmm, I can barely bring myself to say it, pro forma. Oh, the audacity. I feel that Sir John Borman a title I have granted him deserves a champion to step forward and counter this missive from Mr. Tarantino, to stand up in his honor. So here it is pro forma, directly from the Latin, meaning for form's sake, done as a formality. Damn right it's a formality! Even Noah Webster could tell you that cinema has form, and by God, Borman knows it well enough to bow before it to bend his knee, to form in deference and respect. Function be damned! John Borman isn't attempting to make some greasy Hollywood action film just to give the executives at the studio a boner. He aspires to elevate the form to that of literature. But you know what? He also made those money-grubbing studio executives happy. The movie brought in the bucks. The people spoke. They loved Borman's form. And so did the Academy, who gave their best pro forma award to the film. Deliverance is, and shall always remain, a classic of modern 1970s filmmaking. I don't know why I get so worked up. I suppose it's just that this Quentin Tarantino character is one one might call a bombast, who doesn't know how to stay in his lane. Criticism is for critics. Filmmaking is for artists. Stick to your side of the screen, Mr. Tarantino, where you belong the deception and lies of cinema is where your strengths rest. Why not leave the analysis and criticism and truth to the critics? It's your job to make the film, to dream the dream, to reap the box office cash. Those in the audience need a proper collusion-free advocate. Don't you feel that being a director, a film director, and a film critic is cinematic double-dipping? I think this Punk just enjoys taking a big, steaming literary shit all over the previous generation of filmmakers just to elevate his own duplicitous agenda of Filipino chop sucky nonsense and Italian cop films from the 70s, which no sensible person has heard of. Why? Because they suck, that's why. Watching Deliverance, he's disappointed that Burt Reynolds doesn't have an orangutan in the canoe with him. He'd rather John Voight get into a kung fu fight with the hillbilly retreads. But I suspect he's fine with Ned Betty getting cornholed like a pregnant sow. Well, I'm here to tell you, good people, Cinema Speculation is a dangerous book. It's in the goddamn title. It undoes cinema with, you guessed it, speculation. And that's exactly why I, Franklin Browner, am making a direct appeal to you, the fans of cinema throughout the world. You must... Buy this book. You must buy it, and you must read it, and then you must read it again, and again, until you've memorized its blasphemy. Only then will you be able to properly argue the points this black night of ha-ha, bang-bang, movie-making is argued. Only then, when confronted by one of his many minions, will you be able to sit together over coffee and discuss the future and the past of cinema well enough and well-informed with polite discourse On guard, I say. This is Franklin Browner, formerly the head critic of the Winnipeg City Press, signing off and wishing you and yours an enjoyable and enriching night at the movies.
0: Video Archives podcast recognizes its responsibility to present contrary opinions from responsible advocates.
2: And we're back. And we are joined by the lovely Gala Avery, who is here to give her take on the films, but also she serves a function because, like the rest of you out in podcast land, she does not have access to the video archives collection, so it's her job— to persevere to track down these films however she can, whether it's on video or DVD or streaming or whatever. And then if she can provide a roadmap to you about how you can discover the films for yourself... Again, I am persevering from a concept that I want her to fail in this endeavor to show how truly obscure the movies that I'm showing are. And you really have to come to me if you want to see them and that you are lost on your own, wandering through the darkness, bumping into walls.
1: Gala?
0: Hey, Quentin. Hey, Roger. So everyone out there, Quentin did not stump me on Rage. Mm -hmm. You'll be happy to know.
1: No bumping into walls this time?
0: (laughs) No, no blindly walking through the dark, wondering, touching the walls, trying to feel for a tape.
1: Because normally gala, it's it's kind of like uh, the store is closed, and Quentin and I are inside partying after after hours, and we've like we used to, and we'd put a movie on, and every now and then a customer would come and like knock on the window, and like no 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 we're closed, they're like yeah but you're inside, I I just need a quick tape. and And we give them the we shoo them away hand
2: hand expression, and
0: they're like standing at the window like drooling, like looking at the tapes, like let come back when we're open, come back when we're open gala. So this movie succeeded because it made me feel rage. Like, I felt angry when yeah. watching this movie. I, okay, first I watched it with my mom. And my mom's like, what do you want to watch? And I said, okay, let's watch Rage. <laughs> and my mom was like. She's like, okay. Like, and then she's like, this, is his son going to die? And I'm like, yeah, mom, his son's going to die. And she was like, ah. So my mom was really frustrated. The thing I just thought about at the end of the movie was like, was justice served in any way? I mean it's a revenge omatic basically. He's enacting revenge. I love that he has nothing to lose, that he is mm-hmm. de- a dead man already. Yeah, so yeah. he's gonna go on this warpath. But like, is his revenge served? Well, is but, justice well served? It,
2: it's it's a, it's a subgenre of the revenge genre because Can justice be served? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because he's not the hero who's gone through all this and now he's going to make righteous indignation and and, and be a righteous avenger. The tragedies that have inflicted him have driven him crazy. Yeah. So he's not a righteous Avenger. He's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And he's doing, it's the effect of a crazy person. Like Farrah Fawcett in Extremities, mm-hmm. where she's raped and she goes crazy when she gets the rapist, which we should do as a follow-up to our yeah. lipstick episode. <laughs> or uh, uh, Rod Steiger's Hennessy, where his family is killed uh, mm-hmm. by an by an accident like this yeah. uh, with a British soldier and now he's going to blow up the fucking queen during the fucking jubilee. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: In an insane world, the sane man must appear to be insane. Mm.
0: Yeah, I just felt so upset during the movie and then like, like, Like the nurse is like, don't worry, your son's going to be fine. Our doctor's going to take good care of him. And I just started thinking it's like now he's owned by the state, basically. Like they know he's going to die. They're not going to tell him they're going to take his body later. They're going to experiment on it to find what this thing does to him. And I know they make it pretty clear like, oh, this was an accident. But part of me was thinking – Maybe this wasn't an accident. Maybe they know oh, there's only a few people that live around here. Let's take their bodies and see, because.
2: Spoken like a true Avery. <laughs> I know. <you> know? Well, <laughs> well, no,
0: because in the, scene, in the scene where they're all
2: in the war room. They- I didn't buy all that shit. They, met. they knew those fucking guys were well, down there. The,
0: the guy, one of the guys says, oh, Oops. it's like. 40- the bottle's
2: open. Oops. <laughs> well, they
0: say, oh, it's like, well, uh, well within human limit of like 50 parts per million. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? 30 is enough to kill him. Yeah. So it just like it made me start thinking maybe they are doing this on purpose. And it just it made me well, angry. Well,
1: there comes a point when an accident has happened that people just jump on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kubrick makes a good point of how that happens in Dr. Strangelove when the airplanes pass their fail safe and everybody's discussing what to do. And the president says, you know, well, uh, get, get the premier on the phone. He's like, oh, Mr. President, am I to understand that you're going to call premier kiss off and you know, tell him our, uh, you know, mm-hmm. everything that we're going to do about to, and he's like, well, yes, I'm absolutely going to do that. And he's like, Mr. President, <laughs> if I may, <laughs> we have a 20 minute jump on the Russians.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and if we put everything else we've got into it, we stand a good chance of catching them with our pants down. <laughs> <laughs> and Kubrick's point is that guy's job in the room is to make that suggestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To right to on, the yeah. president. And Jersey Scott played that part in Dr. Strange I feel like I've seen so many images of him and Kubrick playing chess together
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I I can just imagine how much time they spent together that I think a little gleam came off of Kubrick a little shine kind of <laughs> came onto Jersey be, Scott a little I mean I am mean, sure Jersey Scott also probably put a little bit onto Kubrick I would not and, be
2: I would not be surprised if Jersey Scott talked over with Kubrick the fact that he was making this movie and sent over a print in England you know for Kubrick to watch when he was finished
1: I got to tell you as I was watching it I, I was thinking Kubrick about Cl- that. I can see Kubrick like in this movie oh I know Kubrick would have liked this (laughs) movie I like this movie and I use that as my indicator of whether Kubrick liked it or not I will say that I noticed a number of reverse tracking shots, Mm -hmm. an effort to do a Kubrickian reverse tracking shot. They tended to always be kind of a little too wonky, (laughs) a little wonky and like off to the side a little too much and never Uh really fully committing to a full reverse tracking shot. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that they were there, that there was a preponderance of them. Yes, there was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with Quentin that the interweaving and editing transitions although interesting, yeah. were wonky and <laughs> bizarre uh, and sometimes confusing, actually, to figure out, especially at, at yeah. the first one where he spits the chew. That was
1: weird. But like he spits into camera and it kind of flies <laughs> into... Almost 3D. They all become, they be, yeah, they're like coming
2: at you. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. Well, they all become fruit from a poison tree because of that first wonky one with the that spit. Yeah, the
0: spit. <laughs> but you know what? The one that I actually thought worked was when his son's hand falls out of the car and then all of a sudden he's on the stretcher. Actually,
2: the one with the yo-yo falling. With yeah. the yo-yo falling. I
0: actually. I don't
1: know. If, I don't know if that worked, but all right. It, Michael it, it, Con, it made its Michael point. Michael Kahn tried. <laughs> it made its point. <laughs> Michael Kahn tried to make it work.
0: <laughs> it
1: was the one that worked the most. Actually agree with that, as dubious <laughs> as that claim is. Now, I said that there were two. Actually, I hate to say it, but the spit was actually the other Cubist shot. <laughs> because he's in the foreground and he spits, and then we pan with the spit to the car that they're driving in. Because that was just so disguised. Because not only- Which is, is it, weird. It's like, spitting it it
0: himself? Not only is it
2: disgusting you describe it, I'm seeing it so <laughs> yeah, fucking clearly
1: in my head. It is really
0: gross. I... <laughs> I really liked that explosion at the end. It yeah. was the explosion that just explosion. kept on giving. Like
1: They're still talking about that in Arizona or Texas or yeah, wherever yeah, they yeah, shot yeah. this movie. Actually, I
0: think they shot it in California. Oh, really? By the, is yeah. it like Palmdale and
1: or something? By, and by the way, one of the things that's really cool about this film is like, after
2: mentioning other moments that George C. Scott has done in his career, and then I was touching base on this again... Jorcey Scott is killer at dying scenes. Oh He's really, yeah. really good and this at dying movie scenes. He doesn't hold back. Yeah, it's like uh, he it's a movie with Richard Flesher that's a pretty good movie called uh, The Last Run. But the reason to watch it is Jorge Scott's dying scene. He's yeah. just got a killer dying scene. And then this, it's such a good performance that it,
1: even though it's not the ending we want, it's
2: it suffices. And for
1: him to make this Directorial choice while mm. acting in the movie yeah. it says a lot. I think it. I mean, it says a lot that he holds on uh, Richard Basehart uh, in that yeah. in that one shot, rather than cutting mm-hmm. you know away. And it says a lot that he shows his own. Death rattle yeah. from a helicopter. From the POV of a helicopter, yeah. you know. He never in,
2: he, in dark. He doesn't go from, in until the very, very end. But I mean, but most directors servicing an actor, servicing a star, and definitely most stars servicing themselves, are going to film that a little closer than the POV of a helicopter when that's almost the most important part of his performance.
1: Yeah. And and especially since you realize in that moment it's all futile. Yeah. He did what he had to do, which was to rage, which is the only state of being he could be in mm-hmm. at that point. And he raged until its ultimate conclusion, which was not justice, because mm-hmm. there is no justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can you have justice-
0: For the loss of your for child. For the loss
1: of yeah. your child. There is no justice. It's mm-hmm. like, it's it's too terrible. But he, he lets all those military officers know he was
2: there, and yeah. he was not to be checked off a list.
0: By the way, I have to say, I love Nicholas Bovey's performance as his son. Mm. For me, the movie- was writing on if this you, feel that, kid. If you, you feel, feel that or not. Do you not? feel that or not? Do you feel it or not? And when he is in the hospital bed writhing and moaning and it's a really hard yeah. performance to do as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he pulls it off to the point where I believe him.
1: You feel that he's Jersey Scott's son and that the two of them Had are father and yeah. son.
0: And but you also you also feel him
1: losing control of his bodily yeah, functions. Wh- which you I really
2: think. feel he he's he's uh, in, in, you know it, was, yeah, so it was, was a fucking nerve gas, yeah. all right, and, and it's killing it. him. Yeah, yeah. and in
0: the scenes where he's showing that he is dying of nerve gas, I hundred percent completely believe him. I think he does an amazing performance. It
1: was disturbing mm-hmm. enough for Gretchen to walk out on the movie mm-hmm. and yeah. go do laundry or something. And then poor, you know, <laughs> like, oh, and the poor, poor Jersey
2: Scott. That great scene where uh, you know we actually sees the son's body, pull, yeah. uh, pulling oh out, gosh. pulling oh. out of the morgue, and, uh, and he uh, almost shows no expression. He almost um, like because yeah. you don't need it at that point. He's He's, first of all, he's George. Well, S. he Scott. doesn't show the breakdown. He show he the time cut that really works. Oh, is, that, to is the that breakdown, that's to what's the, fantastic to, to him? Crying. Like it cuts. He, it cuts after he's left the place, and uh, now he's just crying. He's gone. In, he's in, gone in, to some in, in, in lonely misery. place yeah. to just release yeah. his misery. Okay, that's the time cut that makes that justifies all the other ones. Yeah, and it's yeah.
1: Done just as a simple
2: cut. (laughs) It doesn't need
1: any flourish. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Okay, so I have a review. So I've I've pulled a couple reviews for Rage. One is one of Joe Dante's uh, film bulletin reviews.
1: I love Joe Dante's reviews.
2: Which, like he says, he's he's very embarrassed now because he had never directed a movie before, and he can't believe how hard he is on the director. That's one of the reasons I love Joe (laughs) Dante's reviews. (laughs) So Rage. One of the more downbeat offerings of recent seasons, this Warner Brothers release manages to sustain a fairly consistent level of impassioned drama, thanks primarily to the powerful playing of star George C. Scott, who also directed. Though awkward and excessive at times, the basic thrust of rage is so attuned to the moral outrage felt by concerned segments of the public that it carries an almost built-in righteous impact. Less thoughtful viewers will only find it depressing. The screenplay by Philip Friedman and Dan Kleinman is anything but subtle, but it preys knowingly on current social and political anxieties. When officials of various government agencies lie shamelessly to Scott, coldly deny their involvement to the public, and treat the victims of their actions as control subjects to be coldly analyzed in their death throes, we believe it. It's too close to the front pages not to be unnerving. Production is on the tacky side, and cinematically, Scott's direction is not exactly polished. But he has surrounded himself with a cast cold from previous Scott successes and coaxes nuances and inflections from the actors that are exactly right. Martin Sheen, Bernard Hughes, Kenneth Toby, Robert Walden, Dabs Greer, and others are chilling in clinically detached attitudes that make the emotions of the real people, Scott, family doctor Richard Basehart, farmer John Diskeris, all the more affecting. Scott's handling of the climax is too overwrought to be convincing, and Fred Cohen Kant's mobile cinematography tends to wobble occasionally. But
1: despite its flaws, rage is one moral tract with a reign of truth. That's a really uh, well-written review. That's a very well, I love that. No, Joe Dante, I love his reviews.
2: Yeah, it's a very well-written review. And even his breakdown of the the plot, which I didn't read, is is well done. And I have another review for Rage from Shock Cinema, issue number 30. During the early 70s, a cloud of distrust hovered over the nation, with the government no longer looked upon as a protector, but as an entity with its own self-serving goals and motives. Rage was an early example of the military-slash-secret science subgenre, and it was also a shocking film, though not for obvious reasons. Dan Logan, George C. Scott, who also directed the film, owns a ranch with Livestock in rural America. He is a recent widower and is also raising his 12-year-old son, Chris, by himself. The two decide to camp out one day while checking on the sheep herd. And the next day, Dan awakens to find the boy in a coma-like state, shaking and bleeding from the nose. After rushing to the hospital, the Logans are treated by Dr. Holliford Martin Sheen, a smooth-talking physician who assures Dan that everything is fine. Though Dan wonders why his own doctor, Richard Basar, was taken off the case in the first place. By this point, the military has moved in and a group of officers and medical advisors begin to conference about the situation, including Bernard Hughes, Paul Stevens, Stephen Young, and Robert Walden. It is discovered that a bio-agent was accidentally dropped on civilian land and there's no chance of survival for any victims. A cover-up plan is quickly put into motion. Not one iota of remorse about the casualties is displayed, and Chris does indeed die a very painful death. Doubting these physicians... Dan escapes from his quarantine, under the lazy eye of guard Ed Lauder, and soon makes a trip to the local arms dealer. It is at this point where events take a most unexpected turn, as Dan loads up with weapons and a military police manhunt ensues. At this precise moment, your cinematic rulebook, quote-unquote, is tossed aside. Destruction takes place and bodies pile up. But they aren't the brass targets or Dr. Frankenstein's. Instead, the chalk lines are drawn around guards and patrol officers. These scenes pack an emotional wallop because instead of Buford poster-style heroics, we see policemen and soldiers who don't even know the truth themselves being shot down. And instead of a, a prime slice of 70s revenge... We're served a character study of a man who goes beyond the point of rational thought process. He does indeed manage to take out the biolab, but the real culprits are never even close to being in harm's way. The viewer has felt comfortable knowing where Dan's dark journey was heading. The viewer, it turns out, is wrong. Rage was only one of three projects that Scott directed, and that's a true shame, because he possesses a unique vision behind the lens— All the performers are top drawer, but Sheen and Walden are in career best mode. Sheen is polite and displays no outward signs of wrongdoing, yet somehow conveys the true sense of malady, while Walden is only on screen for a few short minutes, but is truly chilling. Rage dares to explore the ripple effect of retribution, and one does not get to enjoy the ride. A harrowing experience, Rage does belong on the shelf next to Walking Tall and the Parallax View, but also belongs to a genre unto itself. A film with this much star power, backed by a major studio, Warner Brothers, and telling a tale such as this would be almost
1: unheard of today. You know what? That's a really good review. Because I was like a little like put off like like I didn't get to see him get the guys I didn't mm-hmm. get to see him to the people he killed it was just these innocent cops like the poor cops who show up and you know got hit. he had rage but that rage was so misdirected but I think that's the point of rage yeah. is that it is misdirected mm-hmm. and that's part of Scott's you know thesis statement that yeah. he's making the the big takeaway the futility mm-hmm. of even rage yeah yeah that really he never even gets close so Gala, tell us about uh, uh, yes. how we can get uh, Rage.
0: Well, I watched mine on Amazon renting, mm-hmm. but I managed to pick up a Warner Home Video um, box. I actually bought it in a lot for ten dollars with Ooh. Exorcist Three. Oh, which wow! I actually, I love Exorcist Three, so I'm really excited that I have both George C. Scott. Not obviously, Exorcist Three is not directed by George C. Mm-hmm. Scott, it's, it's
2: a George C. Scott double feature. Yeah. Exactly. What, well, so five dollars each?
0: Yeah, five dollars each. Um, mm-hmm. actually, and. I think it was previously owned by another video store because a sticker is on the front that reads that it should go in the action-adventure section.
2: Well, so, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay, if you broke down drama to action-adventure, yeah. I guess I'd go for that. It's so yeah. A form of action and a kind of adventure. Oh, you know, Revenge of Mattis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even twisted ones like
3: yeah. this. Yeah.
4: What in God's name is happening here? The Loved one. Tony Richardson's first film since his Academy Award-winning Tom Jones, The Loved One.
0: The Loved One. A motion picture with something to offend everyone. Shocking. The Loved One, with co-hit Cry For Me, Billy, plays December 26th and 27th at the New Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. 90036. For more information, visit thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film.
2: And now up is our second feature, Tony Richardson's The Loved One. I've been dragging my feet when it comes to watching this movie for (laughs) your entire life. My entire life. (laughs) (laughs) Roger really loves it, and I've heard other people love it, but also one of the things that made it really kind of touching for me to sit down and finally watch it the guy who more or less set me on this road of movie buffdom was my stepfather, uh, Kurt Zastafil. And Kurt brought up the loved one quite a bit over the you know course of the years that I was with him. And in, a, I think in, in fact, I'm positive now because we were talking about this, the loved one is the last Kurt movie I had never seen. I've seen all the other ones that he made a point of talking about and exalting the virtues of, and The Loved One is the only one that I haven't seen. Something about it held me off from seeing it, but also, I guess part of the reason I never got around to seeing it is I liked Kurt's version of it. His
1: That's description it. Is. I suspect
2: I might have even liked it more than the actual movie, so I've kind of held it kind of precious, but it was time for me to see it, and Roger loves the film, and so... Here we are now. And we finally watched The Loved One. I will read the back of the box, and then I will hand the discussion to Roger, and then I will join in. All
1: right. Loved One, 1965.
2: Okay, so this is an MGM UA box. Unfortunately, the smaller kind, not the cool, larger kind, square kind that we like. Uh, It would be from the classic section under the L's. Uh, Billed as the motion picture with something to offend everybody, the loved one gloriously and outrageously fulfills its promise. Absolutely nothing is sacred in this blistering black comedy on the Southern California way of life, dot, 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 and death. A simple vacation visit evolves into a widely chaotic roller coaster ride through Los Angeles for a young English poet, Robert Morris, from How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Based on Evelyn Waugh's classic novel, not novella actually, the satire slings its venom-tipped arrows at such targets as the mortuary business, both human and pet variety, religious cults, the military, Hollywood, British expatriates, and the space race. The star-studded cast features Rod Steiger as Mr. Joy Boy, Jonathan Winters in a dual role. John Gilgood and a 13-year-old Paul Williams I've heard he's actually was actually 25 when he did it he just looked 13 Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) plus cameos by Milton Berle Tab Hunter James Coburn Rodney McDowell Robert Morley and Liberace who is especially great but perhaps most unforgettable I disagree with this uh, even though well I don't know about the unforgettable part but perhaps the most unforgettable and disgusting is Aileen Gibbons as Steiger's whale-like mother who gorges herself while watching TV Wow, they actually credited her on the box. Hmm. Approximate running time, two hours and two minutes. And the tape number of this video archives tape is 7554.
1: Roger, tell us about your appreciation of uh, The Loved One and why you wanted to watch it. The thing about this movie is it comes a year after Dr. Strangelove. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it's obviously an answer to Dr. Strangelove. I brought with me my uh, laser disc mm-hmm. of the- uh, What of, does the cover look like? Of the film.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this Signed by Paul Williams. Mm. I had him uh, sign my disc. It's great. The comedy with something to offend everyone is also on the cover of this. And I noticed, and I hadn't noticed it for years. You know, uh, Paul Williams was in my film, The Rules of Attraction.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so, of course, I, I like was so excited to work with him. And Paul's such mm-hmm. a nice guy. And- I brought my laser disc for him to sign, and he signed it, and I hadn't really looked at it since then, and I never mm-hmm. really thought much about what he wrote. But then, you know, we watched the movie together, and I was thinking about it, and I pulled out my desk um, to look at it, and I noticed that what he had written was Roger. It's not a rocket. <laughs> Love, Paul Williams. <laughs> well, as you know, Dr. Strangelove, it's a dark comedy. hmm It's a movie about essentially um, sex. It's Mm -hmm. a movie about sex. All the subtext in Dr. Strangelove is um, sex-oriented. And it wasn't really until Paul Williams, I looked at this that Paul Williams had written on here, It's Not a Rocket. This Mm -hmm. is also, same thing. Mm -hmm. It's about sex. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about putting, let me see, what did I write here? If Uh the rocket is a penis and we're putting stiffs into orbit or endeavoring to, then this movie really is a direct response to Dr. Strangelove. There is a kind of um, chaotic quality to the approach that speaks to me. Mm -hmm. You know, what Tony Richardson is trying to do really throughout his career, but mostly in this film, which Mm -hmm. was coming right on the heels of an Academy Award winning film.
2: No, it's a
1: huge hit he had right before this.
2: It's his I can do anything I want after this big success. And this is
1: exactly what you're supposed to do, a black and white Evelyn Waugh, you know, social satire uh, based on, you know, Hollywood and the mortuary industry. No, I would buy that. I buy that. That, like, you take that power and you wield it in the way that, yeah. you know, you should. And it's Even old. with an all-star cast. <laughs> you gather together an all-star cast and you make a movie that is out to literally offend. And while mm-hmm. this movie may not seem so offensive now and mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, wild, over-the-top, outrageous mm-hmm. comedy in it, Heskel Wexler who also was the DP and also produced the movie, uh, has said, you know, the movie may not any longer be in its social context. Mm-hmm. And so it might be different. And he kind of longed for more movies to push the boundaries of what was socially acceptable. And at the, at the I time... Think that,
2: I think his comment is right on the money,
1: actually. Yeah. And with this film, that was what they were trying to do. And while it may not read the same way to a modern audience... I can tell you that for me, when I was first exposed to this movie, like sometime around 1988 Mm -hmm. or so, it introduced me to a kind of filmmaking style Mm -hmm. that was comedic, but also dark. And, you know, I have a dark sense of humor Mm -hmm. and a kind of filmmaking approach
3: mm-hmm.
1: that just sang to me. This kind of jumping out of scenes. You know, and Hal Ashby, who edited the film, did a lot mm-hmm. of, like, lapping of dialogue. So yeah. we're we're overhearing the the previous scene and the next scene. Mm. And so it has this kind of editorial quality that, I mean, I actually think it has had a large effect on how I approach movies and also even the structure of films. When I look at the Rules of Attraction now, which is such a... Um, every scene is seemingly disconnected from the scenes that follow and... Uh well, now that you're actually pointing it out like that. No, there
2: is kind of a... Tony Richardson quality to that movie that you you made. Uh, And I don't just mean based on the loved one, based on a lot of his, uh, based on a lot of his You know,
1: I always thought it was just the prisoner that Mm -hmm. influenced me, that kind of editorial style and the cynicism and the kind of carnival-like view of the world. Mm -hmm. I always thought that that was the real influence, but it turns out, you know, it's Peter and with the ruling class. Mm -hmm. It's Tony Richardson with this film. It's Lindsay Anderson. Lindsay Anderson, absolutely Lindsay Anderson, mm -hmm. especially with If and even Britannia Hospital. Hospital. Yeah, yeah. an oh, oh, oh Lucky Man. man. Yeah, yeah, Oh Lucky Man. The whole trilogy. Uh, the, <laughs> the Lucky Man trilogy. <laughs> it's kind of a trilogy. No, it, it absolutely it's is a, a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just nice to
2: hear offhandedly the, the Oh Lucky Man trilogy referred to. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, in preparing for this, I started looking up Richardson and hearing what people had to say about him, what Anjanette Comer had to say about mm-hmm. him, what uh, the, John Kelly, uh, who was this studio had you know, behind it, had to say at the and time.
2: credited his producer along with Howe yeah, cool yeah.
1: And almost down the line, everybody said, he's crazy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He's crazy. That's the guy to do this movie because he's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times in my life I've heard people tell me I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. That I have a kind of crazy approach to filmmaking. That... What I'm looking for from actors is not often what's on the page. It's what they're bringing on the day, in the moment. And that in the moment, we we make these discoveries that are surprising. Well, Roger, I got to say, look, there is... I'll go into
2: this in a second. I didn't really care for the movie that much. However, the way you're describing it, it's making me realize... There is a genuine connection between this movie particular and uh, rules of attraction. For for sure. Completely. And I and never
1: realized it more than when we watched it together. Yeah, it's it's, it's I, mean, I don't know if I actually I, don't know, why, I don't know if I actually plugged it
2: in while we were watching the movie cuz I was actually kind of dealing a lot with the movie. The yeah, movie's a lot course. to so deal I mean, with.
1: There's a hell of a lot going on the in this movie. The movie's a lot to deal with, but but then just
2: thinking about Tony Richardson's career in Toto. Yeah. And then hearing you talk I'm really realizing that, especially when it comes to this movie and Rules of Attraction, there is a connection, but also just even a connection of... uh which is almost even more important, methodology. Like for instance, that's, I can see that's Tony exactly what it is. Yeah. I can see Tony Richardson loving the idea of the Kip pardue going to Europe and like doing that entire thing. We don't Tony know what Richardson, will happen. Yeah. Tony Richardson would think that's a great fucking idea. That yeah. would be that would
1: be the reason to fucking do the movie as far as Tony Richardson yep. is concerned.
2: That's kind of the reason you fucking wanted to do the movie. Exactly. And <laughs> and
1: we are very similar, I've realized, as mm-hmm. as filmmakers and probably as men, you know, that we're seeking to capture a kind of chaos. One of the mm-hmm. things you said while watching the movie, and part Part of it was because of the, the print and, mm-hmm. the, you know, what the film looked like. But I think you said uh, it, it looked like The monkeys.
3: <laughs> well, monkeys. no, it,
2: it evolved into The monkeys. Okay, at first, I'm watching the film. After hearing about it forever, I, I think on the back of the box, my jumping off point on the film is Bill does the motion picture with something to offend everybody. The movie doesn't have almost anything to offend anybody now anymore. This is not a bad thing. I'm not saying this okay. or as a bad thing. But this is a piece of outrageous, scabrous entertainment done at a time, but that time has passed. Yeah. And so it's not outrageous anymore, and it's not as venom-dripped anymore as it used to be. In fact, it's almost even hard to see the venom. And frankly, I see everybody having a good time, right, is what what I see going on. In
1: 1965, to eviscerate the Uh space race and and the military involved in the space race is a kind of like, he's calling everybody out. I'm not saying that then it wasn't that, but
2: frankly, more than anything we've watched on, since we've been doing this series, but I would even go so far as to say, more than anything I've seen in the last two years, and I'm talking about watching movies from the 30s and watching silent movies or whatever, The Loved One is so drastically a movie of its Time yeah, you almost have to project yourself into that time to even kind of get it. When we were watching the movie, I'm not connected with it. I'm enjoying it well enough. You're watching it with me. You're hearing me laugh. Mm-hmm. But most of those laughs are, oh, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, laughs as opposed to actually it, it tickling my funny bone and provoking. A, a, that, that, You're saying, like that's meant to be funny. Yeah, I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that that didn't happen a few times, but it didn't happen that often. And mostly it was a whole lot of oh that's that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Oh hey oh that's oh that's clever. Oh that that's neat. It's 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 like it's a comment on it. And then I made my first real comment on the movie about 50 minutes into it. I go. I feel like I'm watching a black and white Batman episode
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that was so fucking right on to the type of humor that's, that's going on. I mean, you, you, the script is written by Terry Southern yeah. and Christopher
1: Esherwood and Terry Len- Southern, who, Terry Southern, who wrote uh, yeah, Doctor Dr. Strangelove. Strangelove and Christopher Esherwood, who yeah, wrote who's- Frankenstein, the true yeah.
2: story. One of my favorite TV movies of all time. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, um, still
1: the best Frankenstein.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but Lorenzo Simple could have just as well be, you know, working on on this script. It has that same kind of thing. Not only that, you have Batman actors popping up uh, <laughs> in, in the thing. You have you have a, a people a, who would
1: a, be doing guest stars and playing villains. On yeah, Batman. well, you
2: do. Okay, uh, uh, Milton Burrow played a bad yeah. guy on Batman. Uh, uh, Milton Burrow is in. Everything of this period. Liberace played a bad guy in yeah, Batman. You're, yeah, you're right, you're right. Alfred the butler has got a small part That's right, that's in right. the film. and He plays one of the English... Yeah, uh, yeah. And Rod Steiger as Joy Boy is basically playing Victor Buono <laughs> right, as a Batman villain in this movie. Okay, but when I say Batman, that's not me being facetious, that's just picking up on this satirical pop culture kind of comedy that Batman didn't start, but definitely was one of the more Popular versions. Mm Then it stopped being Batman, which, by comparison, actually has a through line, and then it turned
1: into a monkeys episode.
2: When it becomes that they're all at that that room or whatever, yep, with yep. you
1: know, it's like, well, this is just a fucking monkeys episode. When, when they're all in the, the I don't know what they call it a, a waiting room. Oh yeah, or, when they bring everybody, all the cast all, members all, together, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. All, all the military guys come into the room, and there's yeah. a bunch of coffins, and yeah, yeah. they start opening them. Oh yeah, that was the, okay. That okay. And that. There's women inside them, and they're like, "All right, baby, yeah, yeah. rockets away" or something like that. Yeah, the guy you know, jumps no, no, in the yeah, coffin. That, <laughs>
2: Okay, that was the monkeys episode. However, if yeah, they all started, <laughs> if they all started fighting each other and they cut to POWs and zooms and gonks, all right,
1: then it would be a Batman episode. Okay, so I thought about that, what mm-hmm. you said, and the monkeys thing also. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a long while, I used to watch the monkeys to learn about cinema. There was Bob Raffleson did direct it exactly. I will go so far
2: as to say that Bob Raffleson's direction of Head is one of the best directed movies in
1: 1969. For sure, yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on that. You know, great cinema is usually created out of necessity, necessity is the mother of invention. And so, for the monkeys, you've got like one day to shoot 20 scenes or something, mm-hmm. and you've got the monkeys and you've got a room full of people, and there's a bunch of action going on. How are you going to cover it? We don't have time to do uh, master single, single, mm-hmm. all we have time for is master.
3: <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like,
1: that's what we got. And so frequently on the monkeys, they would shoot a master shot, a wide shot, let chaos ensue and then punch in using pan and scan. Mm-hmm. And then they would literally digi- be digitally scanning and creating shots within one single shot, mm-hmm. a master shot. So that's just, you know, being efficient. But when I watch those things and that kind of strange, panning, scanning, digital tracking that they mm-hmm. do, it's fascinating to me. Uh, to me, that's cinema when mm-hmm. I watch it. Now, The Loved One, if it if it bears any kind of similarity to television of that time period, it's partly because when you shoot comedy, when you're shooting, uh, I don't know, Jim Carrey, you know what you've got scripted, but you don't know what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be the dickhead who's too close mm-hmm. that you miss it. Or that you try to push your cinema on Jim Carrey mm-hmm. and, f- you know, n- not capture his spontaneous moment. Mm-hmm. No, the best thing you can do to service the film is to step back mm-hmm. and capture the action. And so a lot of this movie is shot in these kind of long, wide takes, these, these wide takes. And part of the reason he's doing that is mm-hmm. because Richardson is looking for spontaneity. He's, he was constantly asking uh, Morse, mm-hmm. like, what can you do? What would you do? What would you do that would be weird here? Well, I would kiss the tit of the statue. Mm-hmm. Okay, then do that. That's exactly what Roger Avery would do. Mm-hmm. Roger Avery would say, you know, um, hey, I want to spit on that other actor mm-hmm. and see what happens. Then you go to the other actor and say, hey, uh, you know, don't let him do anything. To you. you push him back. If he comes on you, and you, mm-hmm. you like you manipulate to like people to, to make it as real as possible. Uh, I feel Richardson doing that in this, especially when I look at the editing style in The Loved One, which I was always really mm-hmm. enamored no, well, the, with editing style,
2: the editing style, uh, you know, where I had an ultimate problem with it as a movie is in the first half, it was what it was, and it was enjoyable enough. I wasn't ever caught up into it, but it was enjoyable enough as this comedy relic of this time and of this sensibility. It's the sensibility that's of its time more than anything else. Yeah. And um, my problem with the film as a movie is in the last half an hour when it switches over mostly to the Anjanette Comer character. Mm -hmm. And then the film starts taking her seriously and starts taking itself seriously. And I don't take her seriously and I vaguely resent the movie trying to get sincere.
1: Yeah. You know? Oh, no, no. I agree. I think we talked about it a little bit that, um, Mm -hmm. that Richardson and specifically probably at a certain point in the film or maybe it's Hal Ashby realizes at a certain point in the film we haven't really earned that with her. Mm-hmm. And they try to squeeze it all in in what mm-hmm. feels like five consecutive scenes or sequences where mm-hmm. they quickly jam in. Well, this, it's the this only, kind, this well, kind frankly, of it's the only time
2: quality. It's the only time the movie has any true coherence because it actually is telling her story. But I don't care about her story. Yeah, the only thing and that's and necessary
1: also, to tell in her story is her that she's become disillusioned mm-hmm. by everything in the world. That's
2: true. But then the but the movie hurts itself by one. Ignoring Robert Morris for that long, concentrating on her, but also equally concentrating on Jonathan Winters. I think Jonathan Winters is a whole smack dab in the center of this movie. Look, for for the dads of Gen Xers, Jonathan Winters was like considered like the, the funniest guy on the planet. He was like your dad's favorite hippest comedian. Maybe somebody like uh, uh George Carlin maybe somebody like Flip Wilson but mm-hmm. for the most part Jonathan Winters was your dad's genius your was your dad's comedy genius and i bought that for a long long period of time and I don't buy it anymore. I still like him, in it's a mad, mad world. And if he's sitting there with Merv Griffin and just taking items, taking the coffee cup, taking a pencil, uh, 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 taking a comb, and then riffing, improvising six different things that that comb could be, there's nobody better than him. But I don't think he's that good of an actor, and this shows the limits to how not a good actor he is. And the fact that... He's trying to replace Peter Sellers, who I have my own issues about being overrated. All right. But nevertheless, <laughs> having said that, you can't even hold a flickering birthday candle compared to what Peter Sellers does in uh Doctor Strangelove and what Jonathan Winters does in this. He's just not a not only is he not able to pull off the double role, it's it's a true comedian pull it up. There's just nothing there. There's no character there. Where by comparison, he, he's Rod Steiger is playing a ridiculous character, but he's a self-serious actor. And that is he's a real human being.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Rod Steiger shows up around just after the death of John Gilgood, mm-hmm. which is just in time. Yeah because exactly. John Gilgood is so magnificent. No, John in the Gilgud, movie, whatever He's the heart, the heart and soul of this the film. The heart
2: the movie has John Gilgood takes with him when he exits the picture. <laughs>
1: That shot of him Leaving the studio Where we don't even See what he's looking at When he looks back Mm -hmm. At the studio But just him walking out And the melancholic uh, Music that's playing And and his Look back And the back and forth With the stupid Fucking secretary Oh yeah That whole The (laughs) I'm told that you've been here 31 years. (laughs) I hope I'm not here that long. (laughs) I'm sure that's a fate
2: that will not befall you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He has (laughs) such poetic lines in this. There's a line that I love that he delivers to Robert Morris when he's talking about the good old days. (laughs) Ah, yes, the swimming pool. It was like a great aquarium flashing with the limbs of beauties. All (laughs) alas, long since departed. Golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is such a beautiful line. It's a great. And line. I'll tell you something. I haven't been able to understand that line until, like,
3: the I sat, theory, yeah. until
1: you know, I sat down and started like, like, what the hell is he saying there? I've never understood what he said because. Mm-hmm. It's so lyrically spoken. And then Robert Morse's character, like, because he's a poet, Mm -hmm. you can see his, like, appreciation that his uncle Mm -hmm. just exudes poetry constantly. There's a lot of wisdom and Mm -hmm. a lot of criticism, a lot of really smart criticism going on exuding. Well, it it would appear
2: appear that John Gilgood character is the Evelyn Waugh's mouthpiece. He is. He's (laughs) Evelyn Waugh, basically.
1: And when he dies, Mm. when he passes away... And we are now in the world of Joy Boy, mm-hmm. of Dr. Joy Boy. Thank God Rod Steiger is there to pick up. Yes. Because he does. He, he takes he the does. ball and he runs with it. And, and, and I think you asked me why I love this movie. It's mm-hmm. Rod Steiger. Mm-hmm. That's actually why I love this movie. It's Rod Steiger. It's Mr. Joy Boy and the revelation that you don't know anybody until you've been to their home. Joy Boy has some of the most amazing moments, and when we go home to his house mm-hmm. and we meet mom.
3: Okay,
2: did you do you like that part?
1: <laughs> yes, I. To me, that she's fucking
2: disgusting. That's why. That's why I mean, like, made me it. want to fucking gag when she when she's trying to pull the Edith turkey. Massey <laughs> eating fucking eggs is less disgusting
1: than this fucking then woman Eileen Givens. Yeah, Eileen Givens credited on the box. That's how powerful her performance is. I mean, what's um, remarkable when she when he's trying to pull the turkey out of her hands to help her.
3: Ah!
1: Ah! 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 Oh, my
2: God. That's making me fucking vomit in my yeah. mouth. Oh, All right. I
1: mean, yeah. my little Gandy bird. I call him Gandy because he's so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> I
2: mean, what's crazy is how I did not realize that there was this. Forerunner to John Waters Just sitting there in sixty cinema Just waiting to be discovered John Waters and, discovered it Yeah, Mike I'm uh, sure Apparently but well, nevertheless. No, uh, And also there's like the, There's a comedy to Edith Massey's kook That's not there <laughs> <laughs> Joy Boy's mother Joy Boy has
1: it <laughs> well, well, Joy Boy definitely has it And we talked about this on, And I, I showed it to you on the Because the videotape still has the real changes Yeah Because it's clearly a print there's a real change in this movie. I mean, in the old days, uh, people may not even realize this now, mm-hmm. uh, since you know nowadays it feels like you just deliver everything on one yeah. MPV file. What's a real Uncle Roger? Yeah, movies used to come in reels of about ten, <laughs> mm-hmm. or sometimes, you know uh 12. twice as hard, you know, twelve reels if you had a really big movie. And uh, during the movie, you would do a real change and if you're curious about it i suppose you can watch fight club and yeah. Brad Pitt explains what mm-hmm. a real change is they have cigarette burn marks to show it's i don't think it's really done by a cigarette but no, maybe it's a term. maybe in the old days mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but uh, the idea is that when the projectionist sees the blip the projectionist mm-hmm. changes the reels okay so this has always been for editors a dilemma a dilemma because basically what you're doing is you're leaving the editing up to the projectionist yeah you
2: you never want a real change to happen like an exact cut has to happen. You always want a bit of overflow in there, so it doesn't matter. It's it's, it's like
1: a sloppy cut or a hard cut or an indistinct cut by a couple of frames because you're leaving it really up to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mostly um, people are trying to just mitigate- uh, The damage. The damage damage that a projectionist can cause. (laughs) To make the flow good. But this movie was edited by Hal Ashby, who's one of the greatest editors of all time Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite directors as well. And so- there's a moment in the film um, at uh, the Joy Boy house where um, Mr. Joy Boy uh, is – Rod Steiger is making dinner mm-hmm. and he's talking to Anjanet Comer um, who's come over and she is just – What's apple- her name again? Miss Dynatogenes. Dynatogenes. Yeah, Miss Dynatogenes. She's come over because she's in love with – him as uh, an artist at Mm. work. And she's come over because he's romantically interested. Mm. But
2: she's considering it now. She she, She's
1: considering it, but then she shows up at his house and she sees who he really is. Yeah, yeah. And what his life really is, more importantly, that he's got big Mm mum who he's got to take care of. And he's got this weird, perverse life Mm -hmm. that she didn't know about. And so he's in there and he's telling her about this dream that he has. Oh, and I go down to the big supermarket on La Brea and, uh, you know, I buy lobsters by the dozen the way other people buy eggs mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for mom and I'm, uh, I show up and everybody at the supermarket sees me coming and they say, daddy's little joy boy loves lobster, lobster. Mm-hmm. Mom's mm-hmm. little joy boy loves lobster tonight or something like that. Everybody's all happy. And then the dream changes. The dream turns into a nightmare and he begins describing how the dream is a nightmare. And what, Hal Ashby does is he takes the dream part where mm-hmm. he's telling the the fantastic part of the dream. And then right as the dream changes, the real change comes. Mm-hmm. So we have this disjarring cut, this this emotionally jarring cut. Mm-hmm. And after that cut it's the story changes. And after so. that cut, he, he literally says, and then the dream changes. Mm-hmm. And then he describes a nightmare that comes after that of the lobsters. No, eat, that was the mom. I,
2: I wouldn't have even. I, I wouldn't I, have noticed that, but uh, you pointed it out, and that was really great.
1: I think that that is one of the most important moments in cinema, and I think it's a thing of beauty to watch. Before we wrap this up and go to
2: a, a break, and bring Galley in. Um, one of the things uh, that was actually kind of funny to me is, oh, look, you know, there's all of these, these really funny moments. I, I'm not laughing from my heart. I'm laughing from my head. But I really enjoyed the Liberace section. The Liberace section I oh, thought, I, section I is thought he was terrific. I thought the Tab Hunter spiel that he's giving as the tour guide, and just having the fact that Tab Hunter doing it was really cool. And uh, the only era that I like Milton Berle is this era, because it seems like, like, Two years after, uh, it's a Mad Mad World, and he could almost be playing the same fucking guy.
1: He almost played. It's like it's like the character from Mad Men. Mad. Yeah, World. he's
2: almost played the same guy, just be married to somebody else. And then I actually do like the astronaut's wife, Barbara Nichols. I actually thought that scene. Oh, kind of, yeah. I actually thought
1: that scene was kind of sexy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I love it when when he says, uh, you know, will uh, will you be able to? You know, she's like, oh, I know how to play that scene. Yeah. <laughs> like she's got to like dress. She's a stripper, and she's got to uh, like go. Be in front of all the astronauts and everything. He's like, oh, I know how to play that scene. I've heard, actually, (laughs) that Jane Mansfield actually did a a
2: cameo for The Loved One and it got cut out.
1: Really? Yeah. uh I'll bet there was a lot that they cut out of the movie. A lot of cameos and a lot of extra Mm -hmm. stuff. Like when you're making a movie that's collected chaos – that happens, you know. There's my my least favorite moment in Doctor Strange Love is the Coke machine gag. Oh yeah, huh? um, where uh, Bat Guano shoots the Coke machine. It's you know when he mm-hmm. says you know you're gonna have to deal with the Coca Cola company, and then he shoots the Coke machine, and he looks down at it and it sprays in his face. Mm-hmm. It's a convention. It's a conventional comedy gag that somehow got under that. It's way above, beneath, above time. Movie. Like it is way beneath Kubrick's level of yeah. comedy, and he's trying to do like normal. Like I'll do normal comedy the way a normal human being would do it. Yeah, yeah. and that and he tries. And Kubrick's just not that kind of a comedian. He's mm-hmm. a different kind. He works at a much well, higher uh, level.
2: Uh, 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 Pauline Kael talks about that in uh, *Phantom of the Paradise* when Beef slips on his shoes and can't get up again, yeah. and you have Jessica Harper like laughing thing. She goes, okay, De Palma is such a director, he can't even film those scenes. Yeah. All right. Now, it's not like any directors like filming those scenes ever. Yeah. But they're at least capable of doing
1: it. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of those scenes in The Loved One Mm -hmm. that I think are just not that funny. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of the stuff that I think is intended to be, you know, (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha funny gags. Mm-hmm. I frankly don't find that funny. Mm-hmm. What I find funny is the awkwardness and the uncomfortable parts, the the, the more elevated humor. Well, frankly I, I think is genius. Whereas the other stuff, I feel like it's playing mm-hmm. for what a general audience might expect when they come to see a yuck-yuck comedy. Yeah. And he's just trying to deliver that well, to, I think for that component no, of the audience. The movie cannot be
2: separated from its time. When you watch it, it is a product of its time yeah. and you need to kind of go back to that sensibility if you're going to get anything out of it.
1: Yeah. And we're back. And we're back.
0: Hey Quentin. Hey Roger. Okay, so Hi, Hi. (laughs) The very first time I ever saw this movie, I was probably like 15 or 16, and I had to turn it off. Because I actually literally could not physically understand what they were saying. Almost the, the entire
1: movie is dubbed, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, I, and I should mention, I always thought Robert Morse, because of the loved one, was British. Oh,
2: God, no. It's a terrible no, British I accent. I thought he
1: was, no, it is a terrible British accent, but I always thought he was British and that everything else he had done, he was doing American accents.
2: Yeah. So you thought he was just a terrible actor playing himself, but that he <laughs> was, became great, all
3: right, yeah.
1: in the Boatniks. <laughs> and I, should, and I think, like, if I were to remake this movie today, I would want to cast Edgar Wright to play yeah. him. he <laughs> kind of resembles an Edgar Wright character. He has I like a, there's like an Edgar Wright There is an Edgar Wright about... There is an Edgar Wright quality. Uh, to. I, I would love to put Edgar in this movie. Yeah, he mm-hmm.
0: actually looped all of his dialogue. Yeah, uh, He talks about looping everything because he came and he apparently did not have the accent down at all, so he just said it however he wanted to say Which it. Which
1: is weird to make the movie about... Britons in coming to Hollywood all and these, you cast an American. Yeah, with all, with all these Brits. Forget about the fact that the 60s is the
2: time where every young actor was a British actor. They're, like, yeah. they're, they're coming out of their pockets.
0: <laughs> so I watched the movie and I had to turn it off because I couldn't. I was telling my dad the entire time, what are they saying? Oh, I was complaining. Yeah, you were.
1: I, was, I, re- I, re- I, I like vividly remember the moment seat. because this is a movie that's very precious to me and I'm like, I've <laughs> been waiting her whole life and I'm like, okay, finally she's old enough that I can show her the loved one. And I put it on and it's like, the British club scene where they're all talking. And he's like, they're all yeah, <laughs> And it's like the kind of the dialogue is both looped and it's kind of wonky British. Yeah. Uh, well, no, she's like, yeah. And also,
2: she's like fifty years old, and you're dying of a movie where the jumping off point of creativity <laughs> is Batman, <laughs> the monkeys, and laughing. Right? Doctor Strange, <laughs> <at> Doctor Strange, Doctor <laughs> Strange on the high end. Yeah.
0: Well, I rewatched the movie. And I actually have a review from your new favorite film critic, me at 17, oh, okay. when I thought I knew everything. Uh, so this is an excerpt from June 14th, 2013, upon my second viewing. It's about something kooky. Who makes a modern movie in black and white? A man who's told he can make whatever he wants. A man who is told that he is allowed to do his passions just this once. He seized the opportunity and then was locked up forever. <laughs>
1: I don't think he was locked up forever. I think he went <laughs> off and did another movie right after. Then pissed everybody off right <laughs> yeah, after.
3: Even
0: more than The Loved One.
1: <laughs> it, this was the beginning of his pissing everyone off. Yeah. A
0: black and white movie about the funeral business. Of course, interwoven with the Hollywood scene is strange. It shows that Hollywood is death at least it <laughs> showed me that. <laughs> like, I don't know what. Yeah. I was on at 17.
2: And that's an I, excerpt. The, yeah. There's an unexpurged yeah, version, yeah, there's like a, an a, tar- a darker
1: <laughs> a darker version that we're not allowed to discuss. That entire essay.
0: <laughs> I don't know what I was on at 17, but anyway, I rewatched the movie again. Thanks is what you were on. And Teen thinking angst. and thinking I knew how to read a film. Hopefully now I kind of know better, but I upon this viewing as an older person now than I was at 17. I liked it even more, to be honest. I think the transitions are amazing. Hal Ashby as an editor is so good. And there are so many good performances of this, especially now that I've been exposed to Rod Steiger and mm-hmm. can like appreciate Rod yeah, Steiger. Yeah. Liberace is amazing. Liberace,
2: Liberace is terrific. The I
0: Liberace think. sequence is so funny. And at first I didn't realize it was Liberace. And then I realized... It's Liberace. And I was like, oh my God, it's <laughs> so good. You have to say that.
2: To me, Liberace is the only comic turn that comes in there that
1: actually works the way a comic
2: turn is supposed yeah. to yeah, work.
1: You're right. You're right. And part of that is playing on our expectations of Liberace. In the okay, thing, yeah, yeah. Undertaker. He is. Well,
2: I do think that there is an aspect that uh, you're actually hearing Liberace's real voice. What, his non affectation. If, if he didn't have that, this would be his voice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And Roger told me, I have to say it. Okay. Behind the Candelabra is my favorite Soderbergh movie, uh, but only
1: because you don't like Soderbergh films. I don't like
0: Soderbergh <laughs> but I love Behind the Candelabra.
1: I like Behind the Candelabra too. I love.
0: I'm that actually
1: movie. not a fan of Behind the Candelabra. I love it so much. I've seen it like three
0: times. I don't like Soderbergh, but I love Behind the. But Candelabra. I love how
1: brave uh, Michael Douglas is. He's terrific. He's terrific in the movie. They're both. They're both terrific, and they're both brave. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: really good. Actually, yeah, they are. Um, and I love Roddy McDowell. I, I
1: love Roddy he's McDowell. So
0: funny. Just every performance is great. Yeah, Quentin,
1: yeah. you actually mentioned he's. You think he's playing Daryl Zanuck,
2: right? Or, yeah, I do. Th- yeah, I think. Yeah, I think he he might, you're absolutely right. He might very well be playing Daryl yeah, Zanuck. I think you're he, absolutely yeah.
1: it completely makes sense because he has yeah. a father who. Yeah, yeah, he's like hey,
2: ba- yeah, yeah, hey, hey DJ,
1: yeah, yeah, DJ, and everybody's like laughing, like it's all going well, and then yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 DJ, and then suddenly the call turns. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, right. Everybody vacates the room. <laughs> yeah.
2: I actually, I actually think. Even though it's obvious, I think the only sight gag, except for the elephant, the only sight gag that I thought really completely worked was the masseuse with the scout machine, all right, going over uh, Roddy McDowell's head while he's having a meeting. Yes. <laughs> that well, was something and- out of Mike Figgis.
1: <laughs> I mean, th- that he's like sucking in oxygen from a tank like, yeah. in between things. I mean, that's predating a lot of the oh, kind yeah. of 70s and 80s ideas of studio heads. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it's yeah. it's always I, been that way.
0: And I love Paul Williams. He's actually 23 when right. they filmed the film. Mm. Uh, he said that he came in and uh, they started doing him for his wardrobe, and he had to keep his voice high because he had to pretend that he was thirteen, but really he's twenty three. Uh-huh. And then in the um, the DVD special feature uh, interview, he said, "Oh, but my voice was high. That was before all the years of drinking gin. <laughs> <laughs> that was before the years of gin. <laughs> <laughs> it was just really funny. Uh, Lionel Standard playing Hum or the guy that yeah. writes for Hum. I thought he was funny. Mm-hmm. I think that whole gag of like the guru not being the guru mm-hmm. really works for me." Um, I even like Jonathan Winters playing two people. I don't think he really differentiates them very much from each other. I know Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be brothers. Um, The the
1: truth is, the truth is Jonathan Winters is kind of one of the more least interesting characters of the movie. Mm -hmm. Both of them. Mm -hmm. The Blessed Reverend is very simple, Mm -hmm. a character. You know, his desperate schlub brother. Car salesman-like brother. Car salesman-like brother. Is the more interesting version of Jonathan Winters, yeah, you know, and and feels more realistic, and he handles it better. But it's still still not that interesting. Not yeah. that interesting when you when you put him alongside you know John Gilgood. Mm-hmm. I, I love all the the minor performances in this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. They come in and it's just one after another delicious. And you you mentioned that elephant gag, which was yeah. a- absolutely the best visual yeah, yeah. Was, gag in the movie yeah. where um, where they're playing with what is reality and what isn't reality. But, you know, like mm-hmm. they'll cut to a bunch of prisoners running and then they're running to get on a bus.
0: And a shout out to John Gilgood, who is one of the only actors to have ever won an Oscar, Emmy, Grammy and a Tony. So the EGOT. Yeah, he's yeah. got them all. Um, he just
1: is missing that small prize called the Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was my bad. Uh, uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That was good yeah. <laughs> I've found the core to the plague of
4: the 20th century and now I've lost it.
0: <laughs> I have so many favorite moments of this movie, but I'll keep it to two because okay, I yeah. love it. Narrow it. Okay, you th- should keep
1: it to three because three is what advised you. Okay, I'll keep it to three. Uh,
0: thank you for giving me an extra one. The first one is that sex scene romp in the garden. We actually rewatched it today and I made you pause and I said, oh, this is my favorite part. And he was like, this, this is your favorite part. Yeah, I was
1: like, this is your favorite part of the entire movie, the entire movie, which is almost two hours long. This is your favorite part.
0: (laughs) And I love it because it's um, him and Amy are sitting and like he's trying to make a pass at her and finally have sex with her or make out with her. And he's like, you're an American girl and I'm a man. And it's just. I don't know, and then he says, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" And her face goes, "Did you just write that?" And she just yes, yeah.
1: her delivery of that <laughs> her line, delivery, I can't that, do it justice. Where she kind of screeches like a bird constantly yeah. whenever she speaks. That moment is probably the character development for her
3: mm-hmm.
1: because, like, all she cares about is Whispering Glades. But when she hears poetry,
3: mm-hmm.
1: she's so gullible that she's like, "Did you write that?" Everything being false in her world. Nobody's written anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The hum guy.
0: Yeah, the hum Lionel guy's Stander, false. Yeah. He's,
1: <laughs> he's false. And uh,
0: Joy Boy's false. Can we just talk just
1: briefly? Because I, I forgot it earlier. I just have to mention that Rod Steiger, he's such, uh, like, he's so in it in the scene. Mm-hmm. There's a scene when he says to Amy Dinatogenous, I, 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 I just want to show you my room. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure why. I just thought I, I, I felt I had to. No, I love that moment. And that he shows actually. it to her. And then he's showing her the room. And then he kind of goes and he picks up some dumbbells mm-hmm. and he puts them away. We don't even see them. Mm-hmm. He just kind of does it. It's like a little something. Steiger is constantly finding little business that is supernaturalistic mm-hmm. and it just shows his command.
0: Um, I love the condemned house sequence. Um, when she's oh, yeah. swinging over the condemned house. Oh, Oh, that,
2: well, that scene, that's, the, that's the best scene in the movie. Yeah. The whole setup of that scene was great. Mm-hmm. Then the scene, Depliction was fantastic. And her on that swing. swing was amazing. When the movie wasn't able to follow up that scene with something else equally compelling that really showed me, you know, this is a very hit and miss movie.
1: Well, it's funny because Antoinette Comer was uh, an unknown Mm-hmm. Tony Richardson could have cast almost anybody, apparently, at this at, – everybody mm-hmm. wanted to do the movie, mm-hmm. and he chose her. And one of the reasons is because she had a kind of unpredictable quality about her. She was spontaneous in a way that mm-hmm. he was looking for in this film in particular. And she mentions, like, I loved going on that swing.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I loved doing that. And knowing that he's the kind of guy who's like in the moment, what can you do? Mm -hmm. Where are we? Let's swing off of this building. That's her really doing it.
0: And then I know we kind of, you guys were a little lukewarm at the end, but okay. So first off, her name is Thanatogenes. And thanatology is the study of death, but not in like the literal sense of death and dying, but in the idea of death and dying. Mm-hmm. So it's like because her whole thing is that she's just in love with the idea, the concept of the death. concept yeah. of it, not really. Mm-hmm. And I well, every woman, well, like, well, like every
1: woman that works at, at Whispering Glades mm-hmm. appears to be a goth girl. Well, that's yeah, <laughs> a fifties well, goth that's, girl. That's, that's,
2: <laughs> the, that's Zoe Tamarellis's name in uh, Miss Forty Five is Thana. Yeah,
0: ah. um, but I I actually really love the moment where she like kind of decides to die and she goes and she paints her own face. Yeah. Paints her own death. It's, kind of, a, it's a, kind of, I a did not like
2: that whole last 20 minutes with her except for her suicide. Yeah, her that, suicide. I, I was, in fact, I was like talking shit and I was like being like, grumbly. Yeah. And then I, oh, let me shut up for a second. Yeah, just, you, you actually
1: skidded to a stop. You're like, on your motorbike and you're like, wait a minute.
0: Yeah, because it's it's when she's finally realized that her entire world has crumbled. Her guru is fake. Mm-hmm. Her fiance is fake. Mr. Joy Boy is fake. The uh, the head of the Institute has just made a pass on her mm-hmm. and tried to deflower her and said mm-hmm. that all things beautiful must eventually and she change. Kno- and
1: she knows that Whispering Glades is going to be leveled. Yeah, and turned into a retirement So there's community.
0: no place for her. And I love that she paints her own mm-hmm. visage. And,
1: and then, all the bodies are going to be sent to outer space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: and, I, and then I and love- all the stiffs. <laughs> I love though, when he's deciding to put her in the coffin and he says, eternal grace is not for astronauts. They are men of mundane manner. But like her, she yeah. deserves to be in the stars. Mm-hmm. It's such like a touching and beautiful moment because that really is like where he thinks that she deserves to be. And I don't know, I just loved it.
2: And then the last big laugh that, that grabbed me, that made me actually laugh in my belly, all right, is when, uh, uh, after that, <laughs> it's Paul Williams' little face on the TV,
3: blast off! <laughs> yeah, blast off! I love Paul
0: Williams. It's not a rocket.
2: Just, especially, but <laughs> just that, his little face on the uh, the 60s black and white television was, was great.
0: So for anyone that's interested in watching the loved one, it's available on Amazon to rent. I actually watched on a Warner Brothers DVD, which I think has beautiful box art. I love the Title Treatment. Well, that's the
2: original poster. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I love the title treatment and Rod Steiger's name, all big. Um <laughs> I bought my VHS. It is the same MGM UA um box that Quentin has for $9. And Video Archives bought their VHS on $620 for $19.95.
2: So- that makes sense. That's the that was the MGM UA price at that time. And if you which went like- to retail at $29.95.
1: And if you love <laughs> Evelyn Waugh, you might want to check out some of his other books. Uh, I've never actually read The Loved One, but I think, it's, uh, I think it's high time I do because I have read four of his books. I haven't read Brideshead Revisited, mm-hmm. but I've read Scoop, Put Up More Flags, Vile Bodies, and Black Mischief, all of which are great. Yeah. And As, I've, I've, I suggest Scoop.
2: And I've seen the James Ivory Handful of Dust, which I think is
4: based right. on his. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Little sparrow loves a good place to hide. Life's a road, we'll climb on my pony and ride.
2: And we're back for our third and final movie. Again, another film that falls into what I would call the revenge matic This is a very unknown 70s Western called uh, Cry For Me, Billy. It's an unknown 70s Western for the most part, except for true aficionados. Uh, but it shouldn't be because it is a true classic Seventy cynical, paranoid, violent western, uh, with a little bit of hippie trappings uh, in it that uh, works pretty well as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to read the uh, um, back Since of the box. Nineteen
1: seventy-two.
2: Right? Nineteen seventy-two. It stars uh, Cliff Potts, Sochil, and Harry Dean Stanton. In like, we'll talk about him later. But uh, I actually think the first, even though he's been done a lot of stuff, I think the first official, real, truly Harry Dean Stanton performance. Uh, it's a Media Home Video. A nomadic gunfighter, Billy, rides into a small town and tries to help a tribe of runaway Indians. His concern for their welfare puts him at odds with the U.S. Cavalry guarding the tribe, and he's quickly marked as a troublemaker. When the Indians are massacred trying to escape, only a beautiful young woman survives and takes refuge in the wilderness. Billy's attempts to help the girl are resisted at first, but a love affair quickly develops between the two. Their idyllic life is shattered, though, when the cavalry troopers catch up with them, violate the girl, and drive her to suicide. Left alone, Billy obsessively plans his bloodbath mission of vengeance. Harry Dean Stanton, in Paris, Texas, and pretty in pink, plays the hired gunfighter <laughs> who befriends the renegade Billy. Approximately ninety-three minutes. Is, remember, don't forget this is a uh, movie. Okay, so same thing on the box. <laughs> same Let thing on the. Brothers very... say
1: Harry Dean Stanton is from Red Dawn. Yeah. Avenge me! Can avenge me!
2: <laughs> and it would be in the western section under the. Sees, look. I had seen this movie earlier this year. I'd heard about it for a long time, and I was always a, a fan of the actor, a, a light fan of Cliff the Potts. of the actor Cliff Potts. He was sort of a uh, Robert Redford ish uh, uh, wannabe Steve McQueen kind of. Uh, character and he, he, he had his time for a while you mentioned he was in
1: silent running playing yeah he's one of the yeah he's one
2: he's probably the main guy of the uh of the other astronauts in silent running he's in this uh he's in uh, uh one of the lumberjacks in uh uh sometime, uh sometimes a great notion mm-hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of the film uh I first noticed him because I was a big fan of the film uh, the ground star conspiracy mm-hmm. and he's in that but then he would pop up in stuff all along all along the way he Coolest credit is in the mid 70s, like 73, 74. He starred in a TV movie sequel to Nevada Smith. Hmm where he played Nevada Smith. And in it, it was like, so he's playing Nevada Smith, and Lauren Green is playing the the Brian Keith character.
1: So it's like a full self-contained, it's like a TV movie.
2: Yeah, it was, a, actually, it was a TV movie that I think they hoped would become a, a series. Like a backdoor yeah, pilot. Yeah, back, a backdoor pilot. But it was a big TV movie. Not only that, they had also got, uh, I'm trying to remember who the director was, but it's like, uh, um... Like Gordon Douglas, so like a right. big Western a director, TV had D- never yeah. done a TV movie before. Uh, 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 a big Western director like Gordon Douglas actually came and, and and directed it. And also John Michael Hayes, I believe, who's the, the guy who wrote the original screenplay for the Carpetbaggers mm-hmm. and Nevada Smith, because they're all connected, um, uh, also wrote the script for this Nevada Smith sequel. Now, I've been trying to track this TV movie down and I, I've never been able to find it. But there's one part about it that I remember very, very well. I remember liking it. I remember him doing a pretty good job in it. But there's one part that I remember very, very well. Because it is a little direct sequel to Nevada Smith. Because if you've seen Nevada Smith, Steve McQueen fights all the guys that he ends up fighting. Martin Landau at the beginning, then ends up with Carl Malden. And the whole setup for the film is is, uh, he wants this vengeance on these guys. And then Brian Keith teaches them how to get the vengeance. So at the beginning of the TV movie, Lauren Green is playing the Brian Keith character and him and Nevada Smith bump into each other. And so like they have this nice little scene where they, so, so what happened? (laughs) What happened with those guys you were after? And I'd never seen that in a sequel. So like a movie that's all about like, I'm going to kill these five guys. And then he bumps into a guy a couple years later and taught him how to do it. Hey, so what happened with that? (laughs) (laughs) And he answers it. It's, I've remembered it since I was a kid. I started like in right. '73, uh, and he has a really great line uh, because the most memorable scene in Nevada Smith is the knife fight between Martin Landau and Steve McQueen. And he goes, "Yeah, well, okay, yeah." So I, well, I got them all. I got them. I got them. I just, I just remember. You made me practice with a gun until I couldn't hold a gun anymore. And what happens? The first guy comes after me with a knife, <laughs> which I thought was a really great way for them to like deal with the first movie. Anyway, but I've been a fan of, uh, um, of Cliff Potts for a, a long time, and he still shows up and stuff. And the thing about it is, it's easy to mistake this movie possibly as a uh, lower budget film than it is. It's not a studio movie, but... It, it's involved, a lot of big people are involved in it. Not only is there Jordan Cronenwell is, uh, the cinematographer, Elliot Kastner is, uh, maybe he gets the credit for producer, but he definitely gets the credit for presents. But that suggests that it's like, like a backdoor studio movie. Maybe, maybe you got the financing from Britain or something mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, uh, it's not a Corman-like production. It has a studio veneer, even though I don't think they had much money. It still has a studio veneer to it, um the way the movie works is uh, it starts off in this cynical, rough place. All these Indians are massacred. This one girl escapes. Billy goes and and finds her. He has to, they have a long back and forth where she has to trust him. But then they do. And then, then for about 15 minutes, it becomes a romantic idol. And that's the part that's actually quite similar to what happens later. It's quite similar to another film that's, cut from the same cloth, which is uh, Soldier Blue. Mm-hmm. But also just a lot of like 60s inspired 70s westerns. They're, they're both meant to be hippies. Yeah. When they actually get together, the woman never says a line in English until towards the very end, when she actually gets to call him by name,
3: yeah.
2: Billy. But like they don't need they don't need language. And she plays almost the entire film, frankly, naked, naked, or, little, or at least a blanket over her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she's quite good in the movie. I really oh no, liked her a lot. She's incredible. In she's the film. she's terrific in the film, and uh, uh, and they have a good chemistry. It was such a good chemistry that they ended up getting married after the movie was over. Cliff Potts and. And this lady. And she became Maria
3: Potts. Mm -hmm, Yeah.
2: You know, so it has this friends, hippie, idyllic. Oh, if just the world would let them alone, then their love uh, uh, could could, blossom. Could blossom. But that's not what happens. The army soldiers that were looking for her before find them, beat the shit out of him, tie him up, rape her, then leave. She unties him and then she commits suicide. And so now he's out to go and get revenge on these guys. And then that happens in a way that when I first saw the movie seemed more gratifying than it did the second time around. But then it has a really terrific tag at the end that I cannot i'm not even going to describe it because i don't want to set it up but i want to ruin it but there's a a powerful tag at the end that just makes it a cynical fucked up 70s western and just and just which makes this movie as much a product of its time as the loved one was a product of of its time for sure i mean in every way shape or form for sure everything leading up to it but the end especially
3: yeah
2: but uh uh, nevertheless I, i look i still really like the movie uh when I've been trying to watch stuff like this, I haven't liked them that much on the second go around, or at least I have problems with them. But I didn't really have problems with that much with Cry for Me, Billy, except for maybe one thing at the, in the big revenge part. Um, it's just a movie nobody knows about, and it's just such a era of seventies filmmaking and seventies westerns that I thought I really wanted to introduce it to both you. More importantly, I wanted to introduce it to yeah, you, I mean, I and did, then also to our audience, which is secondary as far as I'm concerned. Well, Introducing it to you is the
1: most important part. I had the ne- audience get what they boy. Get. <laughs> I had never seen it, and boy, was I happy to see it. I, maybe happy is not the right word because the movie's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, let me just read this old review from Franklin Browner. No, oh, I didn't know that Franklin Browner uh, chimed in on Cry from Me no, Billy. He uh, back in the in '72, he he penned this <laughs> interview. There is more than just physical nakedness in Maria sochal Potts' fully exposed performance in Cry For Me Billy. The raw emotional smoting her Apache character must endure multiple times throughout the film is soul-crushing. When Cliff Potts' quick-draw saddle tramp becomes her unlikely and only protector, he is labeled an Indian lover and gets to learn the gun-butt's end of intolerance firsthand from (laughs) a grossly unshaven posse of grimy characters, and possibly makes it worse for her by about eight times, which is enough to warrant her character's ultimate self-determination. It is worth noting that the difference between a vigilante and a posse is that the vigilante is a person who considers it their own responsibility to uphold the law and who does so summarily and without legal jurisdiction, while a posse is a group of people summoned to help law enforcement. This reviewer feels these men are neither. They're just scum. <laughs> Cry for me, Billy, 1972.
2: That was
1: pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> You introduced me to '70s westerns, mm-hmm. basically. You or gave me the appreciation for it. you were the one who sat me down and like showed me important unknown westerns, mm-hmm. like I don't know, Monty Hellman's *The Shooting* and *Ride in the Whirlwind*. Yeah, yeah. Huh? And when we watched those movies initially, we talked mostly about the screenplay by Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly yeah from *Ride in the Whirlwind* for sure. *Ride in the Whirlwind*. I mean, I, I to this moment, I can still hear us laughing about man gets hung. Man gets hung. <laughs> yeah, man gets hung. The vernacular of that film is captured so authentically, at least it feels as though it's captured so mm-hmm. authentically, that when people say man gets hung, like, you feel like, okay, that's real. That's how people really would have talked. And this movie had that. Yeah, well, this movie actually, I think, has that even... A
2: a little better than uh, Right in the Whirlwind, even though I think Right in the Whirlwind might even be more authentic in that regards uh, because people were just very unverbal at that time. Mm-hmm. However, all the movies that we watch that have a very, uh, westerns, that have a very strong vernacular going on where, oh, the people are actually kind of verbose, but they're not the verbosity of, of people with a college education. They're the verbosity of another time period. Yeah. And the, even they're, they're, their sentence construction seems different, but there's still something creative about it. Well, all of that comes f- based at the end of the day. All of that comes from the book True Grit. Yeah, that's all yeah, them. Right. Yeah. That's all them taking the dialogue from the novel of True Grit, which was a complete new way of how Western characters could talk. That both told you who they were, but it, it wasn't a, a college professor writer putting words in their mouth completely.
1: And probably without True Grit, you probably don't get. I don't know Cormac McCarthy and you Blood, don't get only, and Blood you, Meridian. You, you
2: don't get okay.
1: like oh, <laughs> you do not get Cormac McCarthy
2: without, without true, grit. true grit. And it really comes across when that old prospector comes by, oh, you know, and lends, and, 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 and lends him the shovel. And the dialogue up until that has been fantastic. I mean, one of the things that's so great about the film is this is opening and closing section with Harry Dean Stanton you don't even realize what him and Harry Dean Stanton are talking about at least half the time yeah. in that opening 20 minutes. You don't need to. But they know what they're talking yeah. about. And it just sounds so fucking authentic. Yeah. And it's also what's great about it is it's the emergence of Harry Dean Stanton as the great actor that he will be, because he has been in other things before. But he finds himself in this movie. And from this movie on, he will be Harry Dean Stanton.
1: You know, when, when it first began, we have a bunch of Apaches kind of rounded up. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're sitting around. They're not being given water. They're sitting in the sun. They're clearly suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody else in the town is just kind of going about their business Mm -hmm. and doing their thing. And um, Oh, and by the way, we have
2: returning from our great demonoid, we have Roy Cameron Jensen, the man who reminds Roger of his father. My dad was there. Of his mining (laughs) father playing... The blacksmith who will ha- end up having quite a bit to do in the movie by the time that it's all finished. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: here he's got his boot on uh, yeah. a bunch of Apaches that they've yeah. got rounded up. Yeah, he's going to break one of their head
2: open with a sledgehammer.
1: Yeah. And Cliff Potts, you know, shows pity to them. When, when it began and he started, you know, I'm going to give them the water. At first I was like, okay, come on. This is, I'm, my bullshit meter is going mm. off. Who's going to do that in the Old West? Mm-hmm. And I know that it's there so that we know in our hearts that this is like the good white guy. Yeah. <laughs> but at, when it, when it but first it also, happened, I was like, come on, this is a yeah. conceit. Yeah. But it also it's also
2: there also. When he, you know, it, uh, he doesn't win over the girl immediately, but he's able to say to her, hey, remember
1: me with the water? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's her. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even expecting her. I didn't think she was even a component of the movie. Mm-hmm. But... Um, once the two of them are together and mm-hmm. we see their relationship forming, and also that we just see this actress, uh, Maria Sochal Potts, nakedly running through the film, just bearing everything. And not just naked physically,
2: literally it, naked emotionally. I would make it a point even stronger from where you're coming from, remembering how you watched it. You didn't just start plugging into her once their idyllic thing started happening. Correct. You plugged into her when you saw what this actress was being required to do and how she pulled it off with a complete aplomb.
1: A brave actress. Yeah. Someone who is giving 100%. I mean, look, we know movies are not easy to make. We, mm-hmm. we make it look easy, but, you know, at the end of the day- this, is a,
2: this was obviously a brutal production. This is
1: a brutal production to make. When you have an actress who is naked and running barefoot through the winter chaparral-
2: mm-hmm.
1: Falling and wrestling, like
2: uh, uh, I'm sure this film was difficult on everybody. It was difficult on the crew. It was difficult on Potts. It it's, was difficult it, on. I'm on sure everybody. it's emotionally
1: on the difficult on for the director. You yeah. know, <laughs> because what you're effectively saying in the film, you know, is about you know both the worst and the best of people. Mm. But and it means that you've got to go to the worst of people to do it.
2: We're back and we're joined by the lovely gala.
0: Unknown is an understatement, Quentin, mm-hmm. when speaking about this movie. This movie is not available on Amazon. It's not available on iTunes. It's not available for streaming anywhere.
2: It's not it's, even available on YouTube.
0: It's not. At one point, there was an account that had it available on YouTube, which is no longer exists. Cliff it's not, shut that down. It's not available on DVD. Mm-hmm. It is only available on VHS.
1: Right on, baby. That's Right, and by the and way, that's it. And that VHS is beautiful. <laughs> by the way, the, tri- <laughs> the way I walk is just the <laughs> way I walk.
2: The way I talk is just the and way actually, I talk. Okay, Bobaloo.
0: <laughs> maybe even. <laughs> maybe even more importantly, this movie is actually not available on torrent websites. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine checked on their very reliable Russian torrent website. Where everything exists. This movie does not exist everything on Everything
1: used on the to internet. exist. Uh, those servers are a little uh, <laughs> under pressure at the moment.
0: Well, this movie <laughs> is only available on VHS is what I'm getting at. Except the Germans pulled through for me. Mm-hmm. I found a German dub on YouTube of this movie.
1: So you watched it in German. I
0: watched it in German mm-hmm. with AI-generated subtitles.
1: Mm-hmm. Which, oh, wow. So you actually had subtitles oh, going This yeah. like, man is under arrest.
0: <laughs> well, they're very bad subtitles, so I had no idea what was going on. But this movie on YouTube in German has 1.8 million views. Oh, really? No kidding. It has a huge following in Germany, which I kind of went into. But the German name for this movie is Gebrante Haut, which means "bleached skin. Gebrante mm. Haut. Which I thought was interesting. Anyway, I had no idea what was going on in the movie. Uh, I really liked that Little Sparrow song, though, that's in it.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I really like oh, that.
2: Oh, I did like that Little... I liked the Little Sparrow yeah, song. And yeah. I like. I kind of liked the Billy song at the end, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: I really liked it. But- Again, that was part of the
2: 70s-ness yeah. of it all. Yep.
0: Because I watched a German version of it, I had to figure out why is there a big German following of the movie and why is the film so hard to see here? So apparently the movie itself was supposed to go through Warner Brothers, which mm. was at the time handling films made by uh, George Barry's Brute production. Oh yeah, for,
2: oh, we never talked about that. It's a, uh, uh it's a Brute movie. Oh right, all right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, George Barry from Fabergé. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, the coolest cologne that I know of in the '70s was Brute. All right, yeah. And uh,
1: they actually have the Brute logo. No, no, <laughs>
2: all the Brute films have that Brute yeah, logo on it's it. It's great. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And so the, a couple of other famous films on the on the Brute uh, line is uh, James Toback's Fingers is like I think the yeah. most famous one. Yeah, fingers. Uh, but then also there's is a, a, uh the black actor Raymond Jock is, uh, is a, a directorial debut of the movie Book of Numbers with mm-hmm. him and Philip Michael Thomas and mm-hmm. Frida Payne is a, is a brute movie as well. But so is
3: this one.
0: So apparently the movie showed poorly. Uh, during its like initial testing and was immediately dropped mm-hmm. um Warner Brothers ended too up too tough yeah i think it was too tough and too rough but Warner Brothers ended up dropping all of the brute movies i think magnetic video made a deal with brute for their library no they did
2: this used to be yeah. uh, this used to be available on uh magnetic and so was fingers so so was all the brute movies yeah. that were available on magnetic uh
0: the brute titles with magnetic home video are considered collectors items they mm-hmm. don't pop up very often they are very rare mm-hmm. um but the movie was so violent that it didn't really go into TV syndication either. Yeah. It did play on the on-TV subscription service yep. in the early 80s, so mm-hmm. it may have had cable airings elsewhere, but it was a rare showing to be had.
2: But that was just... Yeah, but, but on-TV yeah. was very special for on-TV, you yeah. know? It wasn't like if they had the package, then, ever, then Z and, and HBO had it.
0: division Yeah. So like no.
1: vision. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but in the 80s, the Brute Library went into limbo, and the movies went completely out of circulation. Uh, I think... I think Turner Broadcasting bought the library so oddly enough the movies are actually back at Warner Brothers now mm-hmm. uh, where they first started out but Cry for Me Billy has never been made available on DVD or Blu-ray unlike some of the other brute mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. and it's not available to stream anywhere so Yeah I think ones? Fingers
2: is the one that actually got the most yeah. play yeah. all right yeah. uh, on the, from the from the brute library but it does also suggest that somebody still actually has the rights to cry for me, Billy. The fact that, the fact that this exists yeah. and the fact that somebody hasn't been able to put it on YouTube suggests that, oh, no, no, there's still somebody who owns the rights to, to cry for me, Billy. That and they're are, protecting they're, it. They are protecting it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the German following... Probably just dumb luck. It most likely had a supportive distributor in um, in Germany and a supportive release, which is why the film has more German fans and why people in the comments love this movie. Germans like westerns. Also. Germans and also because mm-hmm. it's a darker movie, it mm-hmm. deals with more difficult themes. I would say. And oh, and also, G- well,
2: also Germans have a, a particularly because you know they have their own troubled history. They uh, especially like it when other countries show a movie that shows their troubled history. It's yeah. more of a window to them
1: than a. Mm-hmm.
0: Back in the early 2000s, it was actually not widely known that Social's real name was Maria Potts. She actually took the stage name to divert attention away from anyone in the business knowing that she and Cliff Potts were getting married.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And she wanted to be able to seek out parts on her own, but they ended up getting divorced only a few years after making mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. It
1: means flower in Aztec. Mm-hmm. Social. But, uh, so, but what, was, what was your take
2: on the movie, even though you were was, about, honestly, because was, actually, but I mean, because frankly, this is a movie that does not need much
0: dialogue. It doesn't. It was kind of like a visual novel. Honestly, I watched it. I enjoyed the music. The German was actually semi pleasing to my ears. So I didn't have a terrible time watching it. Um, I, I'm i really happy, though, because I managed to get a VHS tape of it no, online uh-huh. uh, for twenty dollars. Oh, you, is, you got yeah, this one online? I got the exact same one online for twenty dollars. Wow. I'm really excited to actually rewatch it. But you're right, there's not that much dialogue, but a lot was lost on me while watching it in the wrong language. Well, it's
2: funny. There's not a lot of dialogue, but as we made a point, the dialogue that is there is actually really good and really authentic and actually adds a lot to the film.
0: Yeah, but it's a visual novel. It was beautiful, but a lot was lost on me not being able to hear what was going on and know what was going on. So I'm excited to rewatch it.
2: Well, that'll be definitely one of the ones that when you uh, do watch it, we want you to come back. and uh, For sure.
1: You know I started thinking about this movie and that it was like 1972 and I don't normally for some reason think of westerns in the 70s. I hadn't thought of them mm-hmm. so much and but really westerns were being made up into the 80s, 90s. I mean it's still westerns. Well the, are 70, made
2: well the 70s western is a genre unto itself and it's not and it, it's it's separate from the spaghetti
1: western. And, and it, I, I looked up like what other westerns were made yeah, in uh-huh. 1972. I was kind of curious about it. They're and almost all bummers. They're almost all bummers. You got Jeremiah Johnson. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh, you know, with Robert Redford, Sidney Pollack, uh, John Huston and John Milius with uh, Life and Times of Judge mm-hmm. Roy Bean, mm-hmm. Burt Lancaster in Ulzana's Raid uh, Robert Aldridge. might
2: just be my favorite Western of the 70s, actually, Ulzana's Raid.
1: Really? Yeah. Uh, the Revengers with William Holden and Ernest mm-hmm. Borgnine, Pancho Villa with yeah. Telly Savalas, if anyway, that counts. Yeah, any, look, any... Chato's Land, yeah, Charles all the, Bronson. All the
2: movies that came out in the 70s that are Westerns for the most part if it's starring one of the true seventy stars or is meant to be a current movie, then they're all anti-Westerns, all right? Yeah. Where they're looking at jaundiced eye at what had been promoted uh, heroically before. It's a revisionist Western. Yes, exactly. So it's like, yeah, so, so no, no, no. Uh, Jesse James isn't Tyrone Power, all right, in Jesse James. He's Robert Duvall's talking in tongues maniac killer, Mm -hmm. all right, uh, Jesse James in The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid. Uh, Billy the Kid isn't Johnny Mac Brown or Paul Newman's brooding method turn in The Left-Handed Gun, it's Michael J. Pollard and Dirty Little Billy. Right, Dirty Little... I was yeah. just going
1: to ask you about Dirty Little yeah. Billy.
2: Or it's Chris Christopherson, uh, you know, who plays a Billy who kills with all the callousness of a serial killer. Sure. Uh, in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, you When you look at um, the movie Doc, all right, uh, Frank Perry's Doc, with uh, Stacey Keach yeah. as a, uh, Doc Holliday and Harris Eulin as Wyatt Earp, all right, well, in that... The gunfight at OK Corral isn't so much a gunfight, is just that Wyatt Earp just massacres the clans. Yeah. Just kills them like a like a like a like a fascist cop. Just massacres them and the reasons for power and money. So that's where they were all kind of coming from if they were a true 70s movies. Now, at the same time, you still had Andy McLaughlin and Burt Kennedy, all right, making all the movies with all the old timers like Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. John Wayne Wayne
1: and the Cowboys. Yeah. Same year.
2: Yeah. Just, you know, knocking off those films, all right, for their dwindling audience that still wanted to see old-fashioned Westerns. In fact, the only guys doing straight Westerns in the 70s that were still fairly young was James Garland. Gardner and George Bupard. But everybody else, if they're doing a Western, it's an
1: anti Western. It's a cynical Western. It's a cynical Western, yeah.
0: Yeah, also just interesting that uh, Rage and Cry for Me, Billy are the same year, both revenge films.
1: I mean, these are Vietnam years that we're living through at that time. And there's a lot of uh, um, pain and angst. Pain, angst, anxiety, uh, a lot of reflection on who we are as a country and what we're going through. And the movies are clearly showing that. Well, I will tell you, man, Cry
2: for Me, Billy, and Rage was a pretty great double feature. Yeah. That's a really impactful double feature.
0: Yeah. Also, Cry for Me, Billy just makes me wonder how many other amazing movies are out there that have just been completely kind of forgotten and lo- a little bit lost because well, I, Cry for Me Billy honestly it only has, I think, twenty at this point in time, 23 logged views on Letterboxd with no way to watch it. And it just it makes me a little sad because what I saw of it I really liked.
2: I will say that there are a few things out there, but not a whole lot like Cry for Me Billy, where it's not a low budget exploitation movie. It's still a low budget film, but it was made with with studio. made for a price. It's it was made, made for a yeah, price, but it was made for studio resources. All right, by top top people, and you just can't find it anymore. I don't think that there's that many examples quite like Cry for Me, Billy. That there's not a you know a few different reviews floating
1: around for it.
0: Yeah, well, I think everyone should go get the VHS tape while they still can.
1: Yeah. Cry for Me, Billy would also be good with Posse, which we watched. It would be very good with Posse. That's another good one. Mm-hmm.
0: Cry For Me Billy with co-hit The Loved One plays December 26th and 27th at the New Beverly Cinema, 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For more information, visit thenewbev.com. The New Beverly Cinema, always on film.
2: Okay, that's awards time. Yeah, let's, let's hand
3: out some
1: awards.
2: I think it's easy for me to pick best actor for awards because it's definitely for me, George C. Scott. And uh, for best actress, I'm going with Shoshal uh, for uh, best actress for Cry for Me, Belly. So I'm going to go with Rod Steiger
1: mm-hmm. as best actor. Okay.
2: Now- I know that- I it, think he's more a supporting it, actor, but I'll go for I, it. I'll I know, go for it. I, th- I I struggled over that. I would say Robert Morris is the true
1: lead, all right? But I will go, <laughs> I I will allow it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that uh, for me, um, Maria Potts, Maria Social Potts, uh, for me, she's absolutely the bravest, strongest, and most giving, emotionally bare actress in this. Uh...
2: And I would just say from watching the movie, uh, there was like It was her performance that drug you in. It was her performance that put fish hooks in
1: you. Just watching her in the most basic form of life, which was just trying to live and trying to escape and just trying to survive Mm -hmm. in the elements. And everything within me, the cynic within me, was trying to rebel Mm -hmm. against the the white savior quality Mm -hmm. of the movie. And yet it won me over because I wanted these two, this Romeo and Juliet uh, mm-hmm. of the Old West, I wanted them to succeed. I wanted them to live. And it was crushing in the way that and, and only a 1972 film could be. And <laughs> just like the
2: military machine and rage yeah. on these two people living out their lives just trying to live in, the, life. in the in the wilderness. Yeah. All right. You just know? trying to live life. Yeah.
0: I will break lead actor on A Technicality with George C. Scott. Um, I really loved his performance in Rage. I think, I mean, the whole movie is his performance. I, God, I
1: could almost be talked into that as as well. I mean, just I, think I of him as a be, father
0: but... holding his son, running down the hill. Is it, the scene where he But what does like, his face
2: look like? Do you have yeah. a face?
0: You're well, and also he's <laughs> directing.
1: He's also directing at the same time and he's making choices that don't always favor him, but that sometimes favor other actors. Mm-hmm. And so he's a giving director. He's a giving actor. He's doing everything he can to get his rage across, mm-hmm. for, for lack yeah. of a
0: better word. and I think he did a great job. Uh, lead actress, I'm going to go with Anjanette Comer just because I love her uh, performance on her lines. Did you but- write that? <laughs> did you write that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for Best Supporting Actor, uh, I think I had planned when we watched it and leading up to now and everything, I had planned on giving it to Harry Dean Stanton for Cry From Me, Billy, but our talk about Richard Basehart, all right, moved it back to Richard Basehart. I, I mean I get that. Yeah. yeah, it's like that shot that we described with focusing in on him, he is in his own way, he's as heartbreaking as George C. Scott oh, in his own
1: conflicted oh, and in tortured his own private and, yeah. in his
2: own private hell way. Maybe even worse because he knows that he he sent his patients off wrong. Yeah. And it's his responsibility. And he, and not knowing he's uh, abdicating his responsibility, he abdicated
1: it. He's the one man who recognizes his complicitness in the actions that are occurring. And we watch him put two and two together
2: when he realizes, and we see that happen with Scott too. Yeah, Scott has, at a certain point realizes he's hearing double talk with, uh, uh, Martin Sheen. And that's terrific. But, uh, as far as best supporting actress, I think I'm going to go for Barbara Nichols, who plays uh, the astronaut's wife. Really? Yeah, the stripper. Yeah, she's actually really good in the movie. I
1: kind of like her in the film. I, it's I was a like, kind of. I was like, who uh, the fuck is that? And It's then I a shameless her up. role. It's yeah, a yeah, shameless yeah. role because she's got to like be a kind of a washed out stripper. Yeah, I know. I enjoyed her. I enjoyed
2: her in that. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's not a lot to choose from when it comes to best supporting actress. And I'm not going to pick Joy Boy's mother.
1: All right, you <laughs> know, so uh, I, you know, I'll just go along with that. I'll just like sheep, just follow you. <laughs> the only no, you got to pick a best supporting actor. So Did you not pick? Oh, you mean uh, best for supporting,
0: supporting actor? Oh, and best supporting actress. actor.
1: Best supporting actor. No, I'm sorry. I'm going with John Gilgood. Sir, oh, okay, there you Sir go. Sir John Gielgud. I thought you were agreeing to. No, 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 no. Um, his he express he, he's in a different movie. Tony, and Ri- when he leaves, he takes that movie with him. Apparently, Tony Richardson was. Like just enamored with him, and he was the only one that uh, of all the actors that were in that film that he was like, "Look, John Sir John Gilgood is mm-hmm, coming. Mm-hmm. Like we must like rise to his level." Mm-hmm. And I think he does in all the Gilgood scenes. He's great. No, he no he the Gilgood scenes are are, are fantastic.
0: Supporting actor, there's so originally I was actually gonna choose uh, Nicholas Bovey in Rage because I think the kid does such a good job. Mm-hmm. But then when we start talking about the loved one, I start thinking about Liberace, I start thinking about um, Steiger, I start thinking mm-hmm. about Paul Williams.
1: But you were really into that. Kids I was really into
0: that kids before I, you know, so much so that I was like feeling a little I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with him, even though I recognize all the great talent mm-hmm. in the loved one. For Supporting Actress, I'm going to give it to Eileen Givens. She made Quentin ah. nauseous. That's a feat in its own. She
1: made you feel, Quentin.
0: And this is why I think she should win. But you know what? Actress. But that kid, what's that kid's name again? Uh, Nicholas Bovey.
1: Nicholas Bovie. Rage works as a result of the father-son relation of you caring about this father-son relationship. And it's true. Like, George C. Scott is there 100%. He's both as director and you know, fellow actor. He, he's there for that kid. But and if the, 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 but boy, if the if,
0: kid's performance wasn't as good, the movie might not have been sold to me like it was. Yeah. It might not but, have you affected know, me. But it's,
2: he didn't go and cast some terrific kid actor that the kid actor is going to have this wonderful part and he's going to really show himself off type of thing. You know, the kid doesn't have very many lines, mm-hmm. but he does a really good job of what he has. But the performance really is the connection that obviously Scott developed between yes. the two of them. Yes. Now, I actually do think Scott's doing most of the work, but the kid is doing his job. Yes. He's doing his job very well.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, he's, without, ri- being, he's rising uh, up to the needs of his without director. Without being Julia
2: co-star. Butters, without being the show
1: the actor kid.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about best editing?
1: Well, best editing for me goes to Hal Ashby. Thank you, Gala, for prompting me on that. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: uh, I think I would probably, I, I think I'd probably go for that. Maybe Cry For Me, Billy would be, uh, would, let's be give, tough.
1: Let's give best cinematography to Cry For Me, Billy. Well,
2: I'm going to definitely give Best Cinematography to Cry for Me, Billy. All right. I mean, but it's also kind of funny that we're talking about best editing. We're not even mentioning Michael Kahn. Okay. But that's some of the. Well, uh, uh, we're we're Michael gonna...
1: Kahn has had enough accolades in his career. Too. Uh, yes, exactly. He does not need one from us, although he he does a great job. Trying to calm George C. Scott down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do not put the faux pas in the visual scheme at Michael Kahn's feet. In fact, I think he probably made them better.
1: <laughs> oh, I, for sure, he made everything in this movie better. I'm convinced.
0: Yeah, I'm a team Wexler for the loved one for cinematography. I just think, I mean, he, he produced it in black and white. He had to paint. It's true, he's the a producer lawn. as well.
1: He he basically he, he
0: basically like the movie like the movie was together. one of his babies. So I I give it to him and also. In the special features on the disc for the loved one, hearing him talk about the movie mm-hmm. and just the warmth and energy and how he speaks of it with so much love. It just really won me over. And I think he the movie is beautiful.
2: OK, I'm going to go. I'll, I'll start with the director. Uh, I'm going with William A. Graham for A Cry From Me, Billy. Yeah,
1: I have to go with Tony Richardson because he's course. like my dad. <laughs> yes, I got it. <laughs>
3: so,
1: like, and you love the movie. Uh, and perfect, uh, and I absolutely adore the movie. But boy, I would give it to George C. Scott. I would give it to uh, uh, Graham. I would give it to any of these guys. All
2: three, all, all three, three films, of- all
1: three. Even with the problems inherent inside of all, all three, three of them, they're all three well directed yeah. movies. None of them are without problems. You're absolutely right, mm-hmm. and all of them are magnificent.
0: Honestly, I think this week is one of the hardest weeks for awards because I feel like these three movies were all so strong and had so many strong people working on them.
2: But that makes it all the better.
0: I, exactly. I mean. Mm-hmm.
2: The hard choices on our part, but good good, good for us.
0: The hard choices are the good ones. Yeah. Um, I like Tony Richardson for The Loved One. I loved hearing about how he kind of messed with the actors and uh, the scene where he falls into the water. The main character falls in the water and the loved one. It's actually mm-hmm. because he was trying to push her into yeah. the water.
1: He was told by Tony Richardson, mm-hmm. push her in,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> push her in. And he doesn't quite like, and of course, Tony Richardson wanting to create chaos he tries to push her in, but she accidentally knocks a statue, and statue over, over. Mm-hmm. and she doesn't fall in, and he tries to protect her from what is obviously a dangerous st- <laughs> large statue falling on her, and he falls in with, with the statue. So Richardson did exactly what he wanted to do, and just, I just which it, is create chaos. Just create chaos.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I like it. I'm all for chaos, so.
2: Best uh, film? Okay, best- uh,
0: Or best script before
2: uh, best
0: film. Uh, I'm mm. team loved one yeah, for the script.
2: I, I, I'm not expecting to break you guys off of the love one, but <laughs>
0: yeah. I, think, uh, I
1: You know that I have to go with a loved one on this and part part of that, but, but I'm trying to determine in myself, this is based on an Evelyn Juan novel. This is an original screenplay rage. So as I believe, Cry For Me Billy, is Cry For Me Billy based on a book? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. The fact that these are original works- mm-hmm means that we can break this off into best original. And no, best we're
2: not going to play that game. We haven't played that game now. We're not going to try to play again.
1: <laughs> Bullshit. Darn it. I tried to get a, pull a fast one on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No way.
2: No way. I mean, so I think, I think a case could, look, I think a
1: case can be made that. Uh, uh, this is fucking Terry Southern. I'm yeah, going to yeah. give it to the loved one. What the hell? Okay. Yeah.
2: I think a case can be made that the Rage screenplay is maybe slightly even better than the Rage movie. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so I chose Rage. Uh, you guys both chose The Loved One. Best Picture. Loved One.
0: Yeah, for me, it has to be The Loved One because every time I see it, it gets better and I understand more about the movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I can watch it endlessly. To be honest, it'll be hard for me to watch um, Cry For Me Billy again just because of the brutality. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's a brutal experience to sit through that. Yeah. Um. However, I think what I would like to watch in it again is all of the town sequences, mm-hmm. yeah, the uh-huh. scenes in the yeah. town. Uh-huh. Like I love all those scenes in the town yeah. and the scenes with uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, I just love watching those two guys together yeah. and the, the whole thing of the, them being friends. And it's like there's a little friction between them. Something went down between them that yeah, yeah. wasn't entirely good.
2: No, and as a matter, no, as, I, as a ma- little bad blood. No, yeah. as a matter of fact, one. Okay, the way he rides in the town is not too dissimilar from the way I, I shoot. Timothy Oliphant totally. writing it's, town. It's like almost the same. It almost, it's almost seems the same.
1: With those I- I inserts of the- Well, it's uh, in
2: particular, what well, we're both doing, we're both doing the Joseph von Sternberg thing of uh, setting of tracking shots yeah. and putting every piece of fucking- in a, Into uh, a tracking shot. A, track. a, a pr- uh, production design in front of, yeah. uh, art direction in front of the camera as you're following the characters through saddles and through yeah. reins and shit. Making good use of your production. Barrels and wagon wheels and shit. All right, uh, um, But not only that though, the whole beginning conversation that Harry, Dean, Stanton, and Cliff Potts has is very similar to the opening conversation that uh, uh, Caleb DiCatu, the uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Johnny Madrid yeah. have in my Lancer scene, yeah. okay, where they could be friends, there could be friction, it's not for sure, but they definitely have a shared past together that they're both specific about, but vague about the detail. They're, yeah. they're specific about the details, but completely vague about what it is. Well,
1: that's the most delicious scene. And the whole idea that it's sort of like, okay, well, you want to settle this? Okay, well, yeah, let's yeah. settle it the way we did when we were young. Yeah, yeah. And then they smile and you realize, okay, we're going to be able to settle this <laughs> like, like kids. And they literally have the weirdest, most dangerous
2: fast draw competition I've ever seen. Which is where- ne- I mean, I've never <laughs> well, I've seen never seen, seen I've that, never seen that ever. ever.
1: Yeah, where-
2: <laughs> Uh, okay. No, you, don't even describe it. Don't even describe it.
1: Well, let's just say that I'm really glad you and I didn't have a little game like that when we were young. Yeah, exactly. Because well, that I'd, is I'm, a crazy I would game. not have an eye. Because I, 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 I am not that good at fucking bullet hole. <laughs> <laughs> but suffice it to say that it's like this crazy ass game that they play. Mm-hmm. That you feel like a couple of gunslingers as kids might have actually, or as really young preteens, well, might have actually been doing. Well, I, I actually think it bodes
2: well for Cry For Me, Billy, about the fact that we're not even talking about for Best Picture, but then you felt the need. To defend it, yeah. To, to, uh, to, uh, to return to it. Yeah, to return to it and, you know, and, and make a very good
1: defense. Yeah, and, and by the way, and Rage, I think Rage I will return cho- to my catalog of yeah. like, uh, of little gems that I will return to from time to time because. Yeah. Well, I'm
2: choosing Rage as my as my best film. Yeah, of the, that's of, a good choice. Of, of, of the three. And probably is my favorite anyway, all right? But especially this episode, of all of the ones of us reviewing and talking about it, Rage was the one that I started getting emotionally... Yeah. I started I started emotionally feeling and getting caught up in the the emotions of the movie again, the more we double down it's on, frustrating. The, on the describing of it.
1: This movie is built on frustration yeah. because you're watching it and you're just getting more and more frustrated. And at the moment when... Everybody goes in there, and they basically violate his child mm-hmm. in the uh, what it, in the medical examiner's office. Mm-hmm. In the autopsy his dad, room. In the autopsy. It, it, to any, if you're a parent, even if you're not a parent, it's mm-hmm. fucking yeah. like mind-numbingly angering. And and then when George C. Scott makes the discovery, and mm-hmm. he's and the, he just holds on a close-up of himself,
3: yeah,
1: almost showing no emotion. Mm-hmm. And yet screaming emotion. I mean, yeah, I'm screaming yeah, yeah. inside
2: yeah, yeah. my head. Yeah, I'll say one last thing about Rage that I think is should be taken into account is, uh, and it really jumps out compared to something like The Loved One, which is, you know, complicated. You know, you know, they had a book that they had to figure out how to translate to a movie. Now, I can complain that maybe they didn't pull it off 100% mm-hmm. as far as the transfer is concerned. Nevertheless, you know, it's a complicated piece. It's a very, very complicated piece. The thing that should be noted about Rage is it's not a complicated piece. It's a very simple story, very understandable story, very well told. However, this is the movie that we keep coming up with subtextual readings on. This is the movie we keep talking about the scenes that aren't exactly there, but what we think is in between the lines. And it's not gobbledygook. That says a lot when you have a strong simple story, and you can deliver it in a a powerful way. Actually, I would like to see George C. Scott playing in a movie like Rage, directing a movie like Rage, but featuring the supporting cast from Slittis. <laughs> with a, the, the same wanna attention see, I, detail. I want to see him with Rex, all right? The Brennigan swinger. Yeah. I want to see him with a cop with a cold. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah. man who hates nightgowns. Yeah. Or, I want to see
1: him with Walter Hill. <laughs> how Rex's character is uh, contaminated by the MX uh, agent. He would
2: have done a good job in that cast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that ends it for today's episode.
1: Be seeing you.
0: Awesome. Bye. Okay. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellen. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at Video Archives, and on Instagram, at Video Archives Pod.
3: Billy, 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 sing the ballad of Billy, from the day of judgment, oh,
0: Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's Project Avery dot org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.